just to let you know, folks, that as we were recording, John's microphone stopped working, so we had to resort to using the audio on his laptop. So while the quality isn't great, I've done what I can with it, so hope you bear with it to the end, because it's a really interesting chat we have with him. Today's guest is a games developer so famous he has his own Wikipedia page. The founder of Pagan Publishing, he also worked for Wizards of the Coast on Magic the Gathering, worked on Unknown Armies and Puppetland, then left the tabletop industry entirely to work for Sony and Microsoft Game Studios. You may know him more for being the actual original creator of the Delta Green game and one half of the Arc Dream Double Battled Scott Club, Mr. John Scott Tynes. Hey bud, thank you. Um, so before we begin, talking about about you and your history we've, as i say we've got the a or b quiz okay so don't give it any thought we don't have to talk about your answers but we invariably do end up talking about them so first one and i might know the answers to this east coast or west coast west coast okay dennis or shane <laughs> dennis Ooh, controversial <laughs> chambers or lovecraft that's a tough one. Uh, I guess I would say love. I would say Lovecraft. Do you think it's because he kicked it all the whole thing off? I, like, frankly, he's just got a much larger body of interesting work. Uh, mm -hmm. Chambers' run on supernatural fiction was very brief, um, and I mean, I love Chambers, and obviously, have worked a lot with his material. Uh, but yeah, I guess I'd give it to Lovecraft. Plus, I'm here today because I fell in love with Lovecraft's work and way back as a teenager. So. Sure. Fair Give enough, fair enough. Okay. That bastard. Beholding Azathoth in all of his terrible cosmic glory or being ignored by, by Nodens in an emergency? Uh, I'm going to go with Azathoth. Azathoth? Yeah. I'm not sure what you, what you would gain by seeing Azathoth in his cosmic glory, but you, I know what you would lose. I, You know, I, the opportunity to join the uh, the piping uh, lust for gods in his court uh, at the center of the swirling madness and cosmos, I, you know, like... <laughs> It's it's better than what America provides for retirement plans, so I think it's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean that's a fair point. The last the last A or B. D and D fifth edition Delta Green, or to have never written it in the first place. <laughs> uh, I, I would have no problem with uh, with D and D fifth edition Delta Green. That'd, that'd be fine. Sure. Really? Well, I mean, I run. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I run. I run fifth edition for my family. We play it all the time, so I yeah, that's fine. I oh, have no okay. no biases there. Well, you did work for Wizards of the Coast, so you're already compromised. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so so as we do with all of our guests that we've had on, and this includes Dennis, 
We we didn't think Dennis would, but he did. Do you have any interesting, spooky, or supernatural experiences that you couldn't quite explain that you can tell us about? I do. Please do mm-hmm. tell. Um, yeah, it would have been, let me think, um, probably around uh, 1999-ish, I would say. Um, and my uh, grandparents um, on my father's side uh, lived in Mississippi. And um, I think this was after my grandfather had passed away. And I think my grandmother... I think she was, I think she had just passed away. We were there for a funeral, I believe was the deal. And we were staying in her house. Um, and they had had, they, they were hunters. Um, and they had had a succession of bird dogs over many, 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 many years. Um, and, uh, the last one, I'm trying to think what his name was, I forget offhand, but, um, he had, he had died some years previously. Um, and mm-hmm. because my grandfather had passed away and my grandma was moving into like a nursing home kind of place, um, they didn't have a dog. So we we're staying in their house, um, for the funeral. And, um, one night, um, I was in a front bedroom by myself, you know, and I woke up or late at night or something or other. And, um, I heard, uh, the sound of a dog walking around the living room on the other side of the door because the bedroom I was in was right off the living room. And I'd heard, I've been hearing like large dogs moving around that room my entire life. Like growing up, there are always like some enormous bird dog, an Irish setter or something like roaming around in there. And in particular, they had this little table, um, kind of like a, a little bit of an arc shaped table. It was sort of, um, I don't know, sort of like a vaguely Asian table from the thirties or forties probably they had. Um, and it was a skinny little coffee table and, um, it had flaps on the ends that could fold up to make it, you know, more of like a semicircle. And they just hung loose the sides and they would, when you walk past, they would clatter against the, against the legs of the table. And especially if you were a large dog, uh, mm-hmm. bumping into the table as the dogs tend to do, you know, that's what would happen. And so I heard the sound of a large dog kind of like padding around the living room. And I heard the flaps on the table clatter back and forth. And I just, I was just confident. I was just sure that it was their most recent dog who passed away a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, I was listening to the sounds of what I believe to be the ghost of a large dog uh, yeah. roaming around the living room, um, bopping into the furniture. And I was very confident that like I could feel the sensation of the sheets on me in the bed and uh, I could see in the dim light of the room. I couldn't see the living room because the door was closed, but uh, I was I'm very, I was very confident that I was awake. So I heard the sound and I just kind of like thought to myself, like mentally projecting into the ether, uh, you know, you're a good dog, take a break, you know, you can go take it easy. It's all right. Everything's fine. And then I went to sleep and that was that. Um, and then a week or so later, uh, I was having dinner with my parents. Uh, and I told them, I think I heard you know, in the night when we were staying at their house. And I remember my dad said, like, really? And my mom said, I've heard him too. No. And this is not the biggest surprise because my mom has conducted exorcisms and who knows what all. But um, that she had also uh, had a sensation of a dog being in the house when we were visiting there. And then my dad remembered this thing that happened when he was there alone um, recently at the time. 
Um, he'd been working there on paperwork on my grandparents' estate and taxes and new will, all that kind of stuff. And he was just there in the house entirely alone um, and very consumed with paperwork. But as he was working, he realized he heard a dog roaming around the house and just kind of thought, oh, I must have left the screen door open and like neighbor's dog wandered in or something. I'll chase it out here in a minute, but I'm, you know, back to work. I'm just I, all the stuff in my head. He didn't do anything about it. I didn't look for it. And then he forgot about it entirely until I told him at dinner that night. And he was like, yeah, like I heard a dog walking around the house and then I was too distracted with paperwork and I forgot about it until now. So all three of us had this experience of hearing or sensing or whatever this dog or the ghost dog. Um, and I can't explain it. It happens more than you, more than you, you think that, to be honest, because um, I used to have a little Cocker Spaniel and um, I've thought I've heard him walking around lots, lots of times. I don't know whether, whether it's just your brain telling you this, you associate noises with noises that used to happen. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, well that, that's a that, that's a good one. Um, okay, so we'll let's talk a bit about about your your career. So, you, you started Pagan Publishing at nineteen. What what kind of challenges did you face at the age of nineteen, starting a, a publishing company? Um, well, I was in college full time. Uh, it was my second year of college in the fall that I was just starting, um, and uh, I mean. You know, the obvious problems, I had no money. Uh, I had never done publishing before. I didn't know how to use desktop publishing software. Like, I, <laughs> I knew I had nothing uh, going on, except that uh, when I was a kid, my parents um, had been volunteers for a community newsletter, um, mm. and I helped them do paste up. I mean, literally physical paste up. There's no computer involved. Like, taking, like, pieces of typewriting paper with articles typed on them, cutting them out, paste them together into the master sheets and going to mimeograph them in an office building or something. So I, I had seen like that level of like old school pre-computer layout. Um, but I had to uh, figure all that stuff out. Um, and I worked in part-time in the student computer labs on campus, helping kids like print stuff or, you know, use the computer or whatever. So I had access to, um, you know, what at the time was like Adobe PageMaker and, and other software tools like that. And so I learned through like reading books and stuff, how to use those tools, how to lay out a magazine. Um, I recruited articles from my friends in the gaming club at university. Um, and together we wrote the first issue. Um, and I, a couple of the people that I knew in the games club also were, you know, kind of uh, illustrators, uh, aspiring illustrators. And so they drew artwork for me and we were able to put it all together. Um, it was definitely, you know, a big challenge. And of course, then I laid it all out and I printed it. And I had like six copies of my zine. And I didn't have the faintest idea what to do with it, you know, like, ah. <laughs> um, so, I, so I took it to the local game store and was like, hey, do you want some copies of my zine, man? And, uh, and he was like, yeah, this is great. And you should talk to my wholesale distributor because they might buy more copies from you. And I was like, well, how does that work? And so I talked to the distributor and figured that out. And then, you know, it kind of began to spin up from there. Um, but I just, I didn't know anything. And I definitely did not have like a business plan or any kind of professional research. I was just a 19 year old just trying to do something. So it was all, it was all a big learning curve. Yeah, because I've heard the story about uh, Adam Scott Glancy. We're talking to you about, uh, you'd put all the numbers into Excel and it predicted that you were going to go bust. <laughs> yeah, that was many years later uh, when I was done. Uh, <laughs> I ran uh, Pagan for about 12 years, I guess. Um, and, you know, like we kind of limped along. Um, Delta Green was by far the most successful thing we were probably um, The only one that we had to go back to uh, multiple versions. Of. 
Um, but yeah, at some point, because we were doing Delta Green, we had a strategy game, The Hills Rise Wild, which was kind of a Lovecraftian uh, miniatures war game sort of thing. I've got, I've got a copy um, of that. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, I, it's a bizarre. I've, got, I've also got this. I need to remember this. Ah, Cruise and Cultists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's got all, all the cards. And... <laughs> that was hard to get all yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, that's been... That initially appeared in the Unspeakable Oath as like a cutout, you know, card yeah. game thing. Um, and then we did that version, and then the Eon Press did a standalone version as well um, over the years. I've, I've kind of meant to go back and update that at some point because it, it needed some work, but um, not a priority. Um, but yeah, do a Kickstarter. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I think it, it 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 needs a lot of rethinking. Uh, it's not the best game, but it was it was fun to do at the time. But yeah, the story Scott tells, um, we're doing all this stuff and Delta Green have been very successful for us. Um, uh, and so I just kind of tried to figure out like, okay, well, what do we need to be selling to like pay several people like some kind of rudimentary salary instead of just working as freelancers basically for ourselves? Um, how do we, how do we make this viable? Um, and, and the answer I found was like, well, we can't, like, it's not going to, it's not going to be viable. Like, you know, we'd lump along um, and been paying. We, essentially, no one was. There was no. There were no salaries. There's no hourly work. We all just got paid for writing and uh, editing and illustrating and so forth and such. Um, mm. So, trying to um, trying to figure out how to make it into a business, my feeling was like, yeah, we shouldn't. We should just not <laughs> do that. So, um, <laughs> so I decided that I was done, uh, and I was very, I was very burned out by that point as well. After 12 years of doing that, I really, I really needed change. Because, but I heard you had you, you guys had a terrible deal with Chaosium. You were only allowed to print, print a certain amount of, or produce a certain amount of Delta Green books per year. There, well, it wasn't a terrible deal. It was just that um, as a licensor, they didn't want somebody else publishing more books than they right, did, right, because that would be. Almost, almost bizarre um, in terms of like individual titles, like, you know, you know, three releases a year or whatever. So we did have some kind of cap on how many different products we could ship in a year, um, which was like five or something, three or five. I can't recall which. Um, now that didn't include like our magazine and Speakable Oath. Um, there were things we were doing directly as mail order only projects, um, mm -hmm. like the Delta Green Eyes Only booklets. And for those, we had a separate deal with Chaos and we would give them like, and they could just sell it themselves like at conventions or on their own catalog or whatever. So we made so we made that work out. But the reality was like, if we were just doing Call of Cthulhu stuff that was under license from Chaosium, like mm -hmm. we could never be a viable business that way. Um, we really had to figure out something else. And so we were, you know, we were at that point, we were working on, um, you know, The Hills Rise Wild was not a licensed game. That was our own kind of Lovecraftian board game. Um, and then Dennis was working on uh, an original RPG, uh, Godlike, which eventually Arc Dream published. But that was going to be a publishing project for out. Like, how do we do our own stuff and not be so reliant mm -hmm. on this one licensing deal so we can try to make this work? But um, even then, you know, I was so tired of everything. I just couldn't do it. For, for me, I always I always think when I think of the Hills Rise Wild, I think that's Arkham Horror as a board game sprang from the idea of that. And Arkham Horror is a great game, but it, but it is very different to the Hills Rise Wild. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I I, I played a lot of Arkham Horror back in the day, and I really enjoyed it. Um, mm. But yeah, Hills Rise Wild is a miniatures game, like it's a like a Warhammer kind of thing um, with a very small yeah little <laughs> paper models. models. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a very different kind of game. Yeah, 
Yeah, similar kind of feel mm. and maybe a sense of humor um, that Arkham Horror had. But yeah, I mean, was Arkham Horror was the only game you kill Azathoth with a dog as a companion, which we did once. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just to shift focus slightly, so given the, the multi-million dollar industry that Magic the Gathering has become, what insights could you give us into the creative process back then to what it seems to be like now? Well, I don't work on Magic at Wizards these days. But, but, but I mean... It does seem to, it does seem to produce like twelve sets a year. Whereas I used to play Magic the Gathering back in what ninety four. I think I started with um, fourth edition, the last one with the dual lands in, and um, mm-hmm. and there was like, I think they did about three or four sets a year at that time. Yeah, that's that's what it was like in those days when I was there in ninety four and ninety five. Um, they were doing I think about three sets a year roughly. And it's, you know, some are bigger than others. Like Ice Age had its own, had like a, mm. it was a standalone expansion had its own decks. Um, others were only booster packs, like uh, Legends, I think, were only booster packs. But yeah, that was kind of the scale. I mean, but at that point, you know, Magic was like a year old. Mm. Like it had just gotten started. And so they were just, figure, they were just figuring it out uh, and how to make it and what it needed and how to make a good set. And, you know, they really were making it up as they went along. So I've already asked Dennis this privately he always talks about how he has a uh, shrink rack boxes of early magic the gathering prod, uh, products do you <laughs> uh no <laughs> foolishly um i long since like gave oh it all God. away or whatever i you know i yeah yeah no i didn't save any of that stuff um my wife did i met my wife at wizards uh back in those days um and she still she does still have some old uh magic products from way back when as well as like old posters and t-shirts and you know other other yeah. magic stuff from uh, it's all super collectible that stuff though isn't it? So we'll just move sl- slightly mm. onto um onto the, the the computer gaming industry. Obviously, um, Griff can chat more about this. So the question I've got is, how does the computer game industry compare to the tabletop gaming industry? Well, you know, it's several billion dollars larger, many, 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 many billion dollars larger. It's far huger. It employs, you know, tons and tons and tons of people. Um, so it's 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 hard to even compare. It's it's kind of like it's apples and oranges. But I would say that I mean the people that I've worked with in video games are very similar in general. People that are passionate about playing games, making games, you know, it's very much that same mm. kind of culture. Um, there's just a lot a lot more of them, and they can flip on cars. Mm. But following on from that question, I mean, the one thing that you people's image of what the games industry like is very different to the reality. It's uh, I always think of it like building a nuclear reactor. You know, people think you're running around <laughs> having fun, but essentially you you're building a large scale nuclear reactor that's live, and it's really really complex. It requires hundreds of people with non transferable skills. But but the one thing everywhere I've ever worked is everybody in the games industry loves all kinds of games. So my my at work, I work in a room that's just full of board games, full of little miniature games. We yeah. play games. So taking a little step back from that, with, with yourself, was what were you like as a child with games? You know, where where does this creativeness come from and this? wanting to play with games and and entertain people with games 
Yeah, good question. Um, certainly as a kid, I played games with my parents and my dad had been into war games uh, in the early, mid-1970s, late 60s, and had friends who were um, really, you know, big war game buffs. And he knew a couple of people who uh, ended up working in the war game uh, strategy game industry, um, both in the market as it was at that time. Um, and when I was, I don't know, probably like eight or nine, somewhere in there, um, my dad uh, actually ended up going to Gen Con with a friend of his, and they were uh, what we affectionately now are over the years called uh, booth weasels, meaning that they went and volunteered to work at the booth of a game company they loved. Hmm. Um, and usually you would do that, you get like a badge to, for attending, and maybe you could crash on the floor of their hotel room or something. And so we refer to those fans as booth weasels. So my dad was a booth weasel uh, for, um, God, who was it? I think it was SPI. I think it was a, was a game company. I forget. Um, but he came back home from Gen Con with this like stack of war games, strategy games, uh, et cetera, um, that I just devoured. I was really, you know, curious about them and we played a bunch of them and had a really good time with them. Um, we played a lot of a, uh, um, Avalon Hill card game called Naval War. Um, that was designed by Craig Taylor and Naval War was a great, great, fast um, kind of naval battle card game and spawned a lot of uh, imitators over the years. Um, so I grew up playing those kinds of games um, with my family. And then I got into D&D probably when I was 12, I think, around then. Um, played D&D with a friend down the street. So we were, we were just playing like one-on-one. And we just, we just swapped off, you know, DM and player back and forth. Um, and we were playing early, you know, first edition D&D adventures, you know, Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, I kind of graduated uh, into Top Secrets, um, which is an early mm-hmm. espionage game from TSR, which I loved. I played that as well, he and I. Um, and then in high school, um, I joined a uh, like a D&D group, played, you know, regularly for quite a while. Um, and then I began my own campaign and ran that for a couple of years. Um, somewhere in there, I also played uh, Chill, which was uh, an early horror role-playing game from Pace Sutter, which came out, I think, about three years after Call of Cthulhu. Um, and actually, I found Chill first. Um, I, I just saw the game store and thought, that looks really cool. And I tried it out. I loved Chill. It was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chill ended up being a real inspiration for Delta Green, um, because um, unlike Call of Cthulhu, Chill had a uh, like a fictitious organization that the player characters belong to. Uh, it was called SAVE, which is an acronym for a Latin phrase. And SAVE was just like like Ghostbusters, like they were you know kind of do-gooder, deal with supernatural problems kind of group. Um, and Chill, uh, you could play either in Victorian times or in the modern day. But they had support for both settings. And SAVE had a whole history, like a whole you know world-building backstory thing about the organization, its leaders both in the Victorian era and in the modern day. Hmm. Call of Thulu, we were playing Ask of the College uh, for like two years. And, you know, characters died all the time. We were forever getting killed for most of our own stupidity. Um, and we had to then keep rolling up new characters and bring them in. And somehow, <laughs> like, the idea that this band of, like, paranoid, like, weirdos were, like, traveling the world trying to murder cultists would meet some random dude in the lobby and be like, yeah, come on in, join our group. It'll be great. Like this made no goddamn sense. Like it was ridiculous. So um, I felt that having a um, organization 
that kind of like served like the connective tissue between characters, between the plot, um, was something that called really, really needed. And so we did Delta Green as a way to do that in the modern day. We also did that same approach uh, with another book at Pagan, which was Golden Dawn, uh, which is a way to do that in uh, Victorian England. Um, same kind of idea with a different organization. And both of those, Golden Dawn and Delta Green, were definitely inspired by Chill. Uh, by, by yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Chill. And I did the same. I, I did Chill first. And then because like I'm from um, a working class area of England, we didn't have libraries. That if we did, we weren't allowed in them because we'd steal all the books. Um, so I hadn't really come across H.P. Lovecraft. That was a little bit later on. But save, I loved because it was it it reminded me of the um, Peter Cushion films, the 1960s. Yeah. And so when I came to play Call of Cthulhu, the first thing I thought was, where's all the spells? Because in Chill, everybody had, you could, you could summon rats and fireballs it, it was it was a lovely game and and um some of the source material for it was absolutely fab like the vampires book yeah. and the werewolves book you know and and yeah I'm, I'm with you there it was awesome and and you could play anybody from across the world and you had a reason you'd all be in dracula's <laughs> castle in transylvania so from working in the computer industry what strengths from previously writing for the tabletop role-playing game industry do you felt you could draw upon in the game in the in the computer gaming industry um you know there's all kind we make all kinds of different games in this field um from like candy crush to you know the witcher and, and Baldur's gate and all, all kinds of things right so like nothing applies universally but i would say that as a game designer i mean one thing that i think i learned from especially from uh developing the Hills Rise Wild uh, with Yes for Mercores was this maxim I've developed that I've used for years, um, which is, uh, it's, it's a kind of game designer jargon, but it's uh, break big, tune small. Um, when you, when something isn't working in a game and you want to like try changing it, don't change it by like 5%, change it mm -hmm. by like 80%, like crank it up. If that, if that flamethrower is not doing enough damage, don't give it five more points, give it like 80 more points and see back. what happens yeah. and see how it gets used and see what people do differently with it. And then tune small, like, like, like take it back, like five points, 10 points, whatever, like wind it back down, find a sweet spot and go from there. Um, and on Hills Rise Wild, you know, I played as we were, when we were developing that game, you know, we would just play the game over and over again, you know, six, eight, 10 times a day just like for an entire weekend uh, over and over again. Um, and every time we would just like change the stats, change the numbers, adjust this, adjust that, trying to figure out what's, what's going to feel right. Um, and that kind of came out of that experience of realizing like, you know, if you're going to do something new or different or you're having a problem in game design, then like crank it up or cut it by half or something, you know, make a big change and, and try it out before you begin to make small changes. Um, that's uh, at Pagan was... Uh, a lot of design, true design. Um, Chaosium scenarios for Call of Cthulhu in those days, um, this is back in the 80s and 90s, um, they were they were very linear. Um, they were kind of written like a story almost. And to go from like one scene to the next scene, generally it was kind of assumed that you would succeed in making whatever mm. role was required, like a library use role or something or, or spot hidden role, because you had to find the clue that would then take you to the next part of the adventure. And if you didn't find that clue, if you if you blew the die roll or something, this the adventure text wouldn't tell you what to do. It, it didn't have any kind of like 
alternative path or a different way to go. And there were exceptions, but that was a, I would say, a kind of a common problem is that they were very much more interested in the story than in um, making it a very interactive experience that a game master could successfully run and deal with those mm. kind of problems. If you're an experienced game master, you'll just deal with it anyway. Mystery adventures are really complicated. Um, and a lot of games just don't do them. You know, like D&D, generally speaking, is not a game about solving mysteries. You know, you're not trying to piece together evidence and testimony from witnesses and find clues and all this kind of stuff. So they're really, they're really complicated. Um, and at, at Pagan, we really tried to make our adventures much more of a sandbox where we could tell you, here's all the characters, here's the locations, here's the agendas of the people involved. Here's kind of a rough timeline of how things are going to go if you don't intervene. And here are some key set pieces. So like here's a big confrontation scene. Here's a big, you know, the cult ritual scene or whatever. And with that, you can, like, it, it'll work out and be able to successfully navigate this um, because you're not tied to one, you know, sequential series of scenes. We try to make mm. it much more open uh, and interactive that way. Mm. Um, so just to, to step slightly backwards here, just the thoughts I've had, with regard to the Golden Dawn, how easy do you think that would be yeah. to rework as a Pisces book of adventures? <laughs> uh, I mean, certainly everything in that book is in Victorian mm. times um, and is very much about that time period. Uh, and the campaign in that book um, deals with... Um, I guess, I mean, can I spoil like a 30 year old? <laughs> yeah, <adventure>? go ahead. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it deals with art, um, who uh, is a pre Christian pagan uh, ruler um, who's, uh, who, who grew up in his culture um, worshiping a fertility deity for like crops and animals and, you know, keeping your village alive and so forth. Yeah. Which, of course, is Shub um, and so King Arthur shows up and he's a subnigrant cultist, you know, and yes, he's the, you know, king of England and so forth. But his thing is like, well, this sucks. Let's blow up St. Paul's Cathedral. Like, <laughs> what's all this Christian bullshit everywhere? So it, it's like, I don't think it would or could pull other things, but certainly Golden Dawn could come back some, you know, <laughs> So I'm going to bring that back at some point, but uh, if so, I have not heard any word of it. It'd be interesting to see if someone could do it. Could do it. I mean, because at this point, from what I've read, from what I've read about Pisces, no one's quite. It's never been quite detailed how long they've been around. So the Golden Dawn could be a precursor to them, couldn't they? True. Yeah, I mean, certainly the yeah, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. So there was the Delta Green Kickstarter in 2016, and uh, and I followed Dennis on Twitter for a while and I remember him publicly saying he was genuinely worried no one would back it and not really understand how popular Delta Green was I don't think and then it went and hit $400,000 or there or thereabout were you surprised by that? Uh, yeah definitely I mean Delta Green had always been the most popular thing we did at Pagan but um, it had been you know it's been a while and we had not been able to keep it in print uh, successfully, because I mean, I was gone from Pagan all those years, of course, and um, and Pagan itself had kind of you know sort of drifted and had a hard time getting stuff out the door after I left. Um, so by the time Arc Dream began to publish stuff for it, you know, Shane was trying to kind of pick it up and rub it up again, but it was just it was really unclear to everybody if there was really 
how much of an audience mm-hmm. there was. Um, and it turned out there was there was a lot of people out there for it. So we were all uh, genuinely important. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's talk about the labyrinth, which is um, which is the last book that you really that you know you wrote for Delta Green that was released. Okay. Um, yeah. Seeing how popular Delta Green was, it's really, it's really kind of hit its its kind of popularity. You know, people consider it a separate thing to Call of Cthulhu now, which is, which is a really good thing. And and you know, I'm I'm glad it is that way. Because I mean, I backed the original Kickstarter, having played it for years previously, as Call of Cthulhu. And then you saw, you must have seen that there was a second Kickstarter, which also did extremely well. And then by the time the third came round, were you were you starting to get the itch to to write for it again, or did you approach the the, the Arc Dream guys, or did they approach you and ask if you'd be interested in writing something? I mean, we obviously were talking off and on the whole time. Um, at the time that the 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 RPG product got underway, um, I was working at Microsoft in those days, and did not, and we had a baby. My wife and I had a, had a young child, and the idea of trying to work on something that huge was just like, no, nah, there's no way. Um, and what I was doing was slowly working on a new edition of my game, mm-hmm. Home, um, which was a you know a tiny, tiny, tiny game uh, with much more reasonable communities. So I kind of set out the Delta Green RPG product project. Um, I was an email contact with those guys, and I think it's off, but I, I wasn't very involved. Well. So we've been talking over the years about, you know, if there's something I want to do or whatever, and, you know, the door was always open. Um, but at that point, this is probably back in 2019, 2018, somewhere in there, um, was at a time when I was, I left Microsoft because I'm working for a small game studio. Um, and I had more free time. Our kid was older, you know, it's kind of later in life. Um, and so it's like a good time to come back and do a product with um, and the prospect of doing a source book, uh, Milton Green, you know, was really exciting. So, and I, in particular, because of the changes we've made in the setting for Delta Green, the RPG, you know, we kind of wound up the Karatechia, um, and a number of the or- other organizations had kind of faded away or destroyed or was majestic and kind of like reinvented itself and kind of consumed Delta Green to some degree. Um, I felt like we needed some new enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed some new, like, smaller-scale groups we could go after and deal with. Um, not grand conspiracies, but just sort of, like, interesting problems to solve and weird buildings to do. Um, but I also wanted to bring back some of the, or bring back the idea of there being these kind of friendly or allied yeah. organizations. Like, in the original game, you know, we had Phenomenex uh, was an example of those. Um, and so... Those at all also had kind of like, you know, because we had jumped the timeline 20 plus years, um, those things had all changed or gone away. So that's what I wanted to bring back. I wanted to bring back a, an assortment of, you know, possible allies and definite enemies. Um, but I then also wanted to take the tack of looking at how can each of these groups change in response to your activities. Yeah. Like how can they grow and develop or wither and die or whatever, how they escalate or become corruptible. Um, and so I want to make sure these were living groups and not just, um, but the Karatekia was great fun, but ultimately it was like five guys in the house and you can go, you can, you can go kick in the door and call them all and you won. Um, and I wanted to make organizations that would be harder to deal with 
uh, and would require different mm. solutions than just smash Because I mean, even even when you look at someone like Agent Renko, it's never quite sure whether he's a friend or an enemy. It it's been really cleverly written. Um, because because of because of the way his loyalties lie, and it, I mean, I I think that's a real hallmark of Delta Green, never quite known, for me. Um, so tell tell us about what you've got in the pipeline because um, you 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 mess when we spoke via email regarding this, you said you had a new scenario coming out called uh, the Good Life. Now, before you tell us about that, the Good Life in the UK <laughs> was a sitcom. And it was about, <laughs> and it was about <laughs> a posh man and woman living next door to essentially a pair of hippies. Isn't that right, Griff? It, it is, and it was very, very big. So when we hear the good life, we get a mental uh, image. It was massive. Oh, That's what we think of the music as well. And the, the, these hippies next door just grew their own uh, yeah. vegetables and had like a little farm in the garden. And it was the culture clash between like the kind of upper, the people who thought they were upper class versus these kind of yeah. you know, throwback hippie types. So can, what, what can you tell us about The Good Life without spoiling it? Yeah. Um, so The Good Life is a uh, um, product of the Labyrinth Kickstarter we did, um, where one of the many... 10 billion stretch goals we had was to create a series of um, operations that were using groups from the labyrinth or related to it in some way. Um, and so at the time, um, the one I was, I signed up for to write was going to be called um, the Horned God. Um, but I ended up changing that because the idea of the operation changed quite a bit. Um, at the time, I was thinking that it would be, I had this idea for a delivery operation uh, where um, it'd be all about interrogating suspects where um, you're in a like a task force headquarters for a multi-agency thing. You're there with Delta Green. No one knows that. I think you're at FBI or whatever. But they're there for some like, you know, psycho killer, whatever this kind of thing. And it all take place in one night. <clears throat> and you would be interrogating various suspects who are getting dragged in by the cops. Um, and piecing together what was happening and also looking at, um, it was going to be set in, in, in like a, uh, unused public school building, but the task force had taken over kind of like in, uh, the wire we first see in. And the deal was that each crime scene was going to be sort of like recreated in a different classroom, recreated in the sense of like, okay, all the evidence for this crime scene goes in that classroom. We're going to have poster, like foot sized photographs of like the crime scene forms reports, court boards, all, like, every crime scene would get its own classroom. And you were coming in cold. You didn't know anything about this stuff. You just showed up because Elder Green was like, holy crap, what's going on? And you'd be going from, like, classroom to classroom, looking at these kind of, like, virtual crime scenes, basically, and then interrogating suspects who were getting brought in for questioning. Um, and ultimately kind of putting together that the history of the killer and the victims and what was going on was actually tied into this public school. From back when it was still in operation, you know, years before. Um, and ultimately, like the shit hits the fan in the school building and, you know, it all goes pear shaped. That was kind of what I had in mind. Um, but as I began to work on that, um, I was having a hard time working out how to make that something that like a group of agents could do in a really fun way. Because interrogations generally yeah. are like one on one kind of affairs. And so I wanted that police procedural kind of quality to them. But it felt like it wasn't working out the way I wanted. 
Um, and instead, I began looking at um, the uh, Atlanta child murders case and thinking about that, studying it, researching the history of it. Um, and it was really interesting and got me thinking about Atlanta. And as I was like looking around, <clears throat> um, I think I was really just like scrolling around in Google Maps, tracing, because at different times the Atlanta Chalmers case was investigated by the city of Atlanta, but then also by the DeKalb County Police Department, um, the kind of like the, order, the sheriff's organization and other groups as well. And so in like scrolling around the map of Atlanta, looking at these locations and thinking about this and reading all this stuff, I ran across this neighborhood in suburban Atlanta um, with the name of Druid Hills. And, you know, I see the name Druid Hills uh, in a suburban Atlanta neighborhood, and I just think, like, what the hell's that? That's weird. Why is there a place called Druid Hills? Um, and I began looking into it and discovered that it was this sort of uh, planned community of mansions back, like, 120 years ago um, that was very wealthy, very fancy, um, the neighborhood was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park in New York City and many other famous parks back in the, you know, Edwardian kind of Victorian era. And one of the, uh, the creators of Druid Hills was, um, this family who in real life, um, they ran a granite quarry, um, at a place called Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta. And I've heard of Stone Mountain. That's where actually uh, White Wolf got its start. When they were publishing Vampire and Werewolf, all those games. They were in Stone Mountain, Georgia. But Stone Mountain is this huge granite mountain that is famous for having this enormous sculpture carved on the side of it of the leaders of the uh, Confederate Revolution. Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, those guys. Um, it is a Confederate white supremacist monument in suburban Atlanta. It's still there to this day. Um, and the founders of this neighborhood were actually, it turned out, uh, among the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, because they held a, they, I know, they held a ritual to uh, launch the Klan on the top of Stone Mountain at like midnight with like a burning cross and an American flag or a Confederate flag and stuff, and kicked off that whole movement um, circa 1910 or so, I forget when it was exactly. Um, and, and they, the Klan had previously existed in history, but they brought it back. They're the ones who created the 20th century Ku Klux Klan. Um, and so reading all this, like, okay, the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, these, like, racist sons of bitches, um, started a neighborhood in sort of Atlanta called Druid Hills. Like, that's really weird. And I got really curious about it. I studied the neighborhood, its history and its development, all this kind of stuff. And that's what turned into the good life, uh, was learning about that neighborhood and about that history. So the good life is set in the neighborhood of Druid Hills. Um, it is definitely fictionalized, but there are historical characters involved as well, uh, including that family uh, of, of racist scumbags who started the clan. Um, and that's kind of where it began uh, and where it ended up. You'll have to find out when that adventure launched. Well, I, I back the Kickstarter, everything can print, so I'll see you at some point. Do you know, researching that, you probably ended up on a list somewhere now, you know. <laughs> you never know yeah you never know so, yeah it was it was a lot of fun to work on uh i love doing research um and you know when um when you scratch history it bleeds weird whenever you begin looking closely at anything that actually happened there's always like something messed yeah. up in there 
like some weird person or some weird location or some event that's like, what the hell? What was that about? So the more research, like to me, the act of writing this kind of material entirely begins with research because the research is what leads me to the inspiration for what I want to write. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that sounds great, but it's like it sounds like it's going to irk people. But but I think you know that's that's the kind of point of Delta Green to a degree, isn't it? Um, and I mean, you know, lover in the ice. I know someone who walked out of a, of a convention because they started playing that. So, um, yeah, right. so um, the other thing you said you were working on was well, there was two things. We'll, we'll talk about the first one was the King in Yellow Tarot. Yeah. Now, just before we add you on, I actually whipped out my copy of Countdown. And I'd completely forgotten you'd actually written up the entire tarot and what the artwork would look like. Has that been, has that crossed over to the actual printable tarot deck? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That's the deal. So um, this is something that Arc Dream has been uh, trying to get off the ground for many, many years, um, was to find an artist who was up for doing, you know, 78 paintings <laughs> for a tarot deck. Um, and they finally, uh, Kurt Pomoda, uh, is the artist. And so he took the, 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 the descriptions that were in Double Green Countdown all those years ago, which were by myself and, uh, Daniel Harms helping with that as well. Or two of us did that. Um, and we, we created a, 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 a background of the tarot, like a history of it and how it was used and who had a copy of it and so forth. Um, all of which is in Countdown. Um, and so Kurt Komoda did illustrate all the cards. Um, since then, um, I have greatly expanded the, um, source material that goes with it, um, with a lot more mm. detail and a lot more, uh, both real and inventive history. Um, because the scratch history, it leaves weird. Um, I kept finding like really weird things that really happened in reality that connected to the fictional stuff that I had created back in, back in Council years ago. Um, and so. It just got stranger and stranger the deeper I looked. Um, one thing is that in, in Countdown, um, we said that the, the first known copy of the deck that surfaced, that's documented, was in the hands of a fortune teller uh, around the turn of the century, from the last century, named Madame Sosostris. And that's a name that I just took on a lark from uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, because of the fortune teller named Madame Sosostris in, in that poem, who is said to have a wicked pack of cards. And I thought, that's great. I'm going to use Sosostris as this character who has this King Yellow deck. Um, and then I, I wrote a whole novella about Mount Sosostris and the, and the King Yellow tarot deck and so forth back then. Um, and then in researching more, I went back to look up like, okay, where did someone get this Sosostris character? Was it like, did he invent this? And I found that there's a whole history of Sosostris as a name. Um, that's super weird. Uh, it comes from a Egyptian pharaoh who probably never existed, but one of those like Victorian, you know, archaeologist sort of historian yeah. things where they muck some stuff up and got it wrong. Um, but there also was, uh, a appearance by a fortune teller named Sosostris in Aldous Huxley's first novel, um, the guy who wrote Brave New World. His first novel was called Chrome Yellow. Was a, a a paint color, like a, like a painter's paint color, and chrome yellow uh, includes a chapter where a character disguises himself as a fortune teller and claims their name is Madame Tassasis. And I can tell you from having read now a whole ton of books on the subject that T.S. Eliot and Aldous Huxley, who both wrote about Madame Tassasis, 
They both wrote about her in the same year. The exact same year is when they were writing the manuscripts. Elliot created the Sostras for the Wasteland in the spring of that year. Huxley wrote about her in his novel in the summer of that same year. And that's a year in which the two of them did not meet or correspond. They knew each other, but somehow they both separately write about this character. Uh, and there's a lot of other weird stuff about that that I won't go into right now. But the more research I did, just like the weirder and weirder this seemingly fictitious person uh, became. And so um, in the essay that comes with the female tarot, you'll read all about this. Um, and because the essay is entirely written in world, it is written by, you know, scholars of the Kinyela Tarot doing historical research about this mysterious artifact that exists in their world and finding all this bizarre stuff about T.S. Eliot and all this Huxley and all these other people involved as well, including Tennessee Williams. So it's, it's a real, it was a real journey uh, and ended up being a deeply weird bit of historical research that kind of verges into fiction as well. That deck that Kurt Promota illustrated, um, I think also is the most disturbing tarot deck I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, they can be disturbed as uh, well. Yeah, most, I mean, most tarot decks, I mean, there's obviously there's 10 billion tarot decks out there. A lot of them are just, they're just there to be beautiful. They're meant to be like gorgeous art, you know, fun topic, you know, it's like the kitty cat tarot or the, you know, I, I love ponies tarot or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and they're, they're trying to make them, you know, appealing and attractive and gorgeous artwork and fun to use and so forth. And this is not that. <laughs> This is a slap in the face of a tarot. <laughs> it, is, it is bloody, it is visceral, it is violent, it is disturbing. Like it is, it is one messed up card after another. And I think plenty of people who love the tarot would look at this deck and be like, oh no, 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 I don't want this. Um, but if you want a deeply messed up tarot, uh, this is the one for you. And I'm, I'm really proud of how it turned out. I think Kirkham was an amazing artist and he did fantastic. Did, did he do the Alpha WrestleNomicon? Yes, yes, you know, that is yeah, the offer that's really good as well, and it's it's yeah. it's it's very different to Dennis's art, whereas Dennis's yeah. are like painted scenes. It's kind of it's really quite detailed. Kirkamoda's oh, art, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so the the last thing um, that that you mentioned was um, the Whisper Labyrinth. Now, th this is a collection of the stories that you that you wrote for the King in Yellow. Yeah, and a lot of these characters and things inside it appear in impossible landscapes. Yes. So what what can you tell us about yeah. this? Yeah, that was a whole uh, was a whole journey. Um, back in the so when I started Pagan Publishing in 1990, the very first issue of Against People of Zine that I did um, included an article that I wrote uh, called "The Road to Holly," which was about the Queen Yellow Mythos, Carcosa. And it was um, an attempt to kind of like walk through, like, here's what it might be like to go to Carcosa. Here are ways of getting to Carcosa. Here's what it's like to be in Carcosa. Here's how to use some game rules to deal with like navigating Carcosa um, and some places you might go when you're there. Um, so it was a whole thing about this um, that I wrote in my first issue back in college. Um, and then for as Delta Green kind of took along, I kept being um, really obsessed with the King Yellow stuff. And so I worked in, when I was still in college, I was writing a King and Yellow campaign. I ran it for my, my friends at the time. I ran the whole campaign and I began working on a manuscript for it. Um, but um, that project just kind of kept spiraling and I never completed it. 
because I got busy with Megan and when, you know, doing the magazine and everything else. So I ended up abandoning that project. Um, but I did end up writing three stories in those days, in the late 90s. Um, the first one was called Broad Album, which is set in the hotel Broad Album, uh, and featured, uh, JC Lenz as the main character. The second one, uh, was called, uh, Ambrose. The main character is never explained, but it's clearly Ambrose Bierce, who, um, was a influence on Robert Chambers and writing mm. male stories. And it's, it's kind of a story about what happened to Ambrose Beers after he mysteriously vanished in the, in Mexico in the late 1800s, early 1900, early 1900s. And he goes to Carcosa and things went so well. And the final story was called Sesostris. And it's about Madame Sesostris and the King Yellow Death. And, um, those three stories, um, I published initially as, uh, like limited edition chapbooks, like a little, like, you know, booklet basically for each one. Um, and, a couple of them got reprinted in anthologies later on, um, but they never really all appeared together at all, and mostly have been out of print, unobtainable, except as pirated PDFs. Um, and so I always wanted to get those three stories back together again, mm. uh, for, or whatever, for the first time. And so we've been talking about that with our dream, you know, off and on over the years, and we need to get to that. It's one of the many, many, many projects in the backlog. Um, but it worked out this time. And so for this edition of the stories, um, I ended up, I, w- I went back to do some revisions on the stories. So they're now almost 30 years old, they're 25 years old. Um, and I definitely felt like those, that was very early in my writing and the things I want to go back and change, kind of, kind of like George Lucas of Star Wars. I wanted to fix some stuff. Um, and I, and I ended up just rewriting all three stories from scratch, like blank file, complete rewrites from the ground up. And so while the stories are broadly the same and the characters are there, um, every single word is new. Um, and the way they unfold is different. And they're also quite a bit longer. They're really all three of them are now in the balance. And so, uh, it's quite a big chunk of, of work. Um, and the original stories with those characters and locations, um, including the Whisper Labyrinth, Dennis then used in Impossible Landscapes because he always loved that stuff too. And so he wove in characters and situations and locations from my stories in Impossible Landscapes. And so then when I went back to rewrite these stories, I kept the kind of Impossible Landscapes open. And, and then I went through there and I found stuff in Dennis's book that I then wove back into my stories as well. So there's now <laughs> stuff in my stories that's in Impossible Landscapes that wasn't in my stories originally. That's great, though. Um, it's a lot of fun. So, have you included the originals in the book, or have you just discarded them entirely and thought, "I'll start fresh with it"? Yeah. If you want to get them, you've got to just dig them up from somewhere. Then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You'll, you'll, I'm sure you can find them online. Uh, but no, I wanted to. I mean, this is the version that I care about the most. Yeah. Um, it's and it, it represents what I learned as a writer uh, and as a human being over the years, um, and I would say that they are, there's a lot more to them. There's more history, there's more world building, there's more weird stuff, there's more like deeply, deeply messed up situations. Uh, and some truly like really, really horrible things happen now that did not happen in original stories. So it isn't like they got safer or kinder or sweeter. They actually got a lot worse in some ways. Um, but they also are now, I would say, much more concerned with the characters as characters yeah. with their emotions and their 
feelings and all that kind of good stuff, uh, which may sound kind of lame, but it actually ends up um, when you know why someone wants to do something, then they can you can have them as an author make even worse choices because you yeah. know how badly they want something and, and what they're willing to do to get it. Mm. So the more you understand your characters, like the more messed up everything can actually be. Uh, and that, that definitely what happens in the Steve versions. Because it's a, it's up for the Kickstarter. It's only available as a hardback to the backers, isn't it? Everyone, it's going to yeah, be a softback. I think there'll be an ebook as well. I forget offhand, but yeah, it'll be a hardback initially. And there's some gorgeous, um, but also very disturbing artwork uh, by Samuel Araya, who's a terrific artist and worked with off and on for many years. And I'm very happy to illustrate the book. He's the guy who did the King in Yellow art, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. And also, um, yes, he did. And he did the um, uh, new pieces inside of Puppet Land as well. Um, the big color pieces inside of Puppet Land uh, were by Sam as well. Yeah, he's a great artist from Paraguay. Um, and, I, and he, I think, yeah, I think I gave him his first freelance assignment back in 2000 or so when he was a student um, and he mailed his portfolio. And I was, and I was always looking for, really good artists who were super cheap because we didn't have any money. And, you know, a lot of students, a lot of young artists, uh, and Sam did gorgeous work. And he did a bunch of work for me at, on the armies and on the video game public as well. And then, but he had, he's had a long, amazing career as an illustrator ever since. He's a great guy, very talented. And his work on the King Yellow book that Artroom did and now on Whisper Labyrinth, I think it's just fantastic. So, so would you say you've kind of you've got the the um as the bug kind of bitten you to continue writing Delta Green stuff now, or is this just a one off a one off deal? It's a bit of a one off because um, I work at Wizards of the Coast these days, and um, they do have kind of a uh, a non compete agreement. Like you know, if you're working for us, you should not also be working for other game companies who are making other role playing games or card games or whatever. So the Delta Green stuff that I had signed up for um, was dated back from before I began at Wizards. And so I had this kind of pre-existing commitments. Having finished that work with uh, The Good Life, I'm done with those work, those commitments now. Um, and so I have to take a break uh, from Delta Green for a while. I can do fiction, but I won't be doing uh, like role-playing game work until hypothetically I'm at some other employer or young Okay, well, there'll be some people, including myself, who are sad to hear that, but, you know, <laughs> just, just glad that you actually came back and wrote, and wrote some more stuff for it. Okay, so... Yeah, I had a... Yeah. <laughs> Green 5th edition. I, I, I think mean, I worked on edition. Call of Cthulhu D20 back in the day. Original question. Words, I know. So, uh, you know, I, I have no shame. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to move on to the, the questions now that we've... Uh, I, what it is, I went on to... The uh, Night of the Opera Discord, the Delta Green Discord, the Good Friends of Jackson Elias Discord, and the, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's an Impossible Landscapes Discord. Oh, I think I did see a, a link to it on Reddit or something. Oh, there's the, stu the stuff people do on it is incredible. They're like, they've done like um, audio handouts, you know, for like the, like things um, like the bit in um, Impossible Landscapes with where, where the young lad murdered his dad in the bath. Hmm. And you find an audio tape of him talk and you hear his dad's voice someone's done like yeah. the audio with that and things like that. and it's it's really well done and it's all just it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a labor of love for these people it's not like they're not making anything off it so what yeah. i did was i, I went I went on to these the discords that i was already a member of and said okay 
we've got John Scott Tynes coming on. Is there anything, any questions you, you'd like to ask him? And we got a pretty decent response. And it's it's not just Delta Green people have asked about. So the way we're going to do this, I'm going to ask you one and then Griff will. And I've got the final question, which I think you're going to enjoy. Okay. So I'll, I'll tell you the names of some of the people that have asked these questions because some of them are bizarre. So the first question from, from me is from someone called Controlling Crowds. And it is, what would happen if two of the lonely formed a relationship shutting out the world? When one of them disappears, does it leave a silhouette hole in the wall like in the movie Pulse? Essentially, what happens when one disappears but not the other? Boy, um, <laughs> I don't think I would have a great answer to that off the top of my head. Um, I mean, the first thing I would have to ask is like, like it's a bit of a challenge to even imagine two lonely being able to connect with each other at all. Like that's part of the problem. Like they can't connect with people. Um, but I, I can go past that to say like, yes, I could imagine a uh, codependent relationship um, between two people who are both in a very messed up place and maybe, maybe like don't even know how to care for each other, but they have like overlapping interests and agendas and reasons why like practical reasons why like maybe one of them can't even go to a grocery store other one can that kind of thing yeah um so i can i can imagine like a really self-destructive codependent relationship between two only i suppose um yeah it's interesting i mean because then you know you do wonder if you know maybe when they change they change together maybe it's a simultaneous kind of thing mm. um but uh yeah i don't know um I'm amused that they're citing uh, uh, Kyosha Kurosawa's film Pulse because literally I have the Blu ray right here. <laughs> what are the chances? Um, <laughs> and uh, that's because um, this uh, DVD company, uh, Arrow Video, is in the UK, I believe. Yeah. And they do, they do like a, a bunch of like cult movies and weird movies and so forth. Mm. And they contacted me because they're doing a, a Blu-ray of a um, uh, a cop film called Narc that starred um, Ray Liotta. Um, great movie, terrific movie, and they're they're doing an audition of it. And they contacted me because um, at the time the movie came out, I was writing for a local newspaper doing movie reviews, and so I would interview you know actors or directors that came to town, and I interviewed Ray Liotta all about the making of Narc because he was a producer on the film. He actually was the one that got it made. Uh, as well as starring it. And so they wanted to reprint my interview with Leota in the booklet for the DVD of NARC they're doing. And I was like, sure, great, absolutely. And they said, you want any DVDs from our library? We'd be happy to send you something. And I'm like, yeah, give me Pulse. There you go. Because, <laughs> because that is one of my, <laughs> my very favorite sort of ghost story kind of movies. I think Pulse is, is, is brilliant. I love it. So, yeah, um, great question. I wish I had like a clever answer, but uh, the joy of writing is that you don't have to be clever on demand. You get to think <laughs> about it and then write down the clever things over many hours yeah. and revise them. Yeah. And then when they show up, you're like, aha, I'm so clever. But it actually took you like 30 hours. To do that. But if you, if you want to have a think about it and then send me an audio of the answer, I'll cut it right in. <laughs> <laughs> there, we, there we go. Okay. So you got your question there, Griff? Yep. So this is from the uh, Moldy Bread guys. 
By the way, that was moldy bread, comma, guys. <laughs> yeah, moldy bread, comma, guys. And I'm going to read this literally. <laughs> okay, bro. This that. isn't me. This is their words. I, are you ever going to do more unknown armies as your return to Delta Green was pretty good? <laughs> well, I'll take it. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, not for now, uh, for the same reason as, as Delta Green stuff, that uh, while I'm working at Wizards, I can't be working on other companies' uh, tabletop games. Um, so in some future world, when maybe I'm not employed there anymore, who knows? But for the time being, it's all limits. How about the um, fiction side of it? Because you said you, 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 is there the draw to do fiction with unknown armies as there is with other things like Delta Green? It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's been a long time since I did anything with unknown armies. Um, for the third edition, everything happened at the same time. Um, the new version of Delta Green and the new version of unknown armies were both happening at the same time. Um, and it's also at the same time that I was working on Puppet Lands and revising that and expanding it a bit about. And I had to pick, and I picked a couple of ones, um, in part because it's the only one of those three that was 100% me. Like, couple of is just me. Mm. Um, and I wanted, and nobody else was going to bring it back, but I didn't do it. So I wanted to focus on that. Um, so I sat out on the Armies and Delta Green RPG at the time. Um, but on the third edition of the Armies, the one thing I did do is uh, they sent me a PDF of all three of the books that were in the initial release. Two books? Two books. Two books. Um, with a suggestion that I go through there and um, just like write stuff in the margins, um, much like Impossible Landscapes has like like weird little notation yeah. and stuff there. So Atlas Games asked me like, "Did you do that?" And I was like, "Sure, that sounds fun." So I went through and wrote something for just about every spread of those books, which they typeset and stuff on there. It's just like random marginalia and scribbling. So that stuff's all me. That, that's that's all me. I did on that on that project. Yeah, I mean, I love Unknown Armies. Uh, Unknown Armies kind of filled Delta Green for me for quite a few years because um, writing Unknown Armies, uh, it really required that I, I kind of had to like change my worldview. You know, like the way that if you're a Delta Green fan and you read about like the UFO stuff in the press, right? You know, the, the military is, you know, now studying UFOs openly and so forth. As a Delta Green fan, you read that and you're like, oh, what does this mean for like the program or Majestic or whatever? You know, because you, you, you built your own set of filters on reality that change incoming information into like Delta Green speak. Well, I did the same thing. I reprogrammed my brain to write unknown armies. And so everything weird that happened stopped looking like Cthulhu, stopped looking like Delta Green, like the Grays, like whatever, Queen Yellow, and started looking like unknown armies instead. And that's not a switch that I can just flip back and forth, but I really kind of have to like mm. get my head in that space and stay there. And so um, once I began working on Lemon Armies, um, my, I, you know, I wasn't really able to write for Delta Green for quite a while. Um, there was a period actually when uh, I was going to write a uh, Delta Green eyes only booklets, like Dennis did for the Fate and the Nego and stuff um, in Project Rainbow. Um, and I began working on one, I was writing it. And the more I wrote of it, the more I, I like it was, I couldn't even tell you what it was about now, except that early on, it was something to do with a guy who was having sex with his car. And I was, <laughs> I was telling Dennis about this and he was like, dude, that's on the armies. That's not Delta Green. 
<laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right. It's like I can't, I can't just, I can't write Delta Green right now. Like I've got on an army's brain. Uh, so, so I kind of like after countdown, I didn't do any more writing for Delta Green. Um, I did other armies for several years, um, overlapping and then extending beyond that. So I was like, I was, I was still able to like edit work and you know and give it some things, but I just couldn't write for Delta Green. So other armies was a huge mental shift for me that I stayed with for several years and. I think uh, before I could think about writing Unknown Army's fiction, I would have to like get back into that headspace again. And I'm there for Delta Green because of the labyrinth and so forth. So I think anything I might do, I would do for Delta Green for the foreseeable future in terms of fiction. Um, hmm. But presently, I'm working on a fiction project that has nothing to do with any of those things. It's just something else entirely. Oh, wow. So. What's, what's it got to do with it? Or is it just, or can't you tell us? Um, I, I want to be a little bit cagey, mostly just to say that it is uh, um, sort of like, uh, what's they call it, Alan Moore's uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, oh, okay. It is about two fictional characters, historical fictional characters, who I am teaming up together in a way that never happened in any previous story. Um, they're both from the 18th century. Uh, both they were they were written in the 18th century and they were set in the 18th century. So it's a historical fantasy adventure about two fictional characters um, and their adventures. So that's what I'm doing. And what that means is that I'm doing a lot of research. So actually, like, right here, mm. let's see. Yeah. So like all of these are books I'm currently looking at for my project. There's probably another three yeah. times that many that I've already gone through and like parsed them, made notes, thought about them, moved on. That's just going to keep going. Like it's it's probably out. Like I might not be writing the first chapter for another six months. I don't even know. It'll take a while for get there. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. Is I'm working on that fantasy adventure book, which is also going to be super messed up. Um, I don't think it's going to be hard per se, but there's some definitely some really weird stuff in there. But again, it comes out of history. Is it a similar sort of thing where when you've done your research, you've scratched it yeah. and it's bled it, weird? Yes. Yes. And it's, it's tricky because they're both fictional characters. Like they don't actually exist in history, but the writers did and the context they were created in did. And so I'm looking both at the history of that time and place and places and the authors of those things, but also at the characters and trying to figure out like if these characters existed. And I'm putting, I'm specifying like years they were, you know, birth years and stuff for them. Like how, like what was going on at that time in the world that's relevant to this? That comes out of the author's lives, comes out of the characters' adventures, comes out of history. There's a lot there. Um, I needed them to be at a boarding school together. They're going to be like high school, like um, 16, 17, 18 years old at this end of the story. Even though they're known as adult characters, this is going to be like the early years. And so yeah. I went looking for a um, like a boarding school in Germany, um, and found one um, in Bremen that uh, was formerly a monastery, and uh, is in the oldest part of the city, and is super interesting and weird and kind of huge, um, and opened the door to some very useful historical tidbits as well. So. You start looking, you know, I ended up, I ended up on like uh, Google Maps looking at all the street view imagery because now it's a car park. 
uh, it's gone, except there's still a portion of the building that still exists. At one end of the car park, there's still this like old facade of like some columns and stuff from this, you know, medieval monastery. It's still got like a little slice of it remaining, which is bizarre and kind of fun to see. So that's my That sounds like that'd be really good. <laughs> It'll probably take about 10 we- years. So the next question we have is from someone called TRHMC. I don't know what I don't know what the names are about. I'd like to know more about the hypothetical King in Yellow campaign that you tried to create but ended up giving up on. From the forward word in impossible landscapes, it sounds like you made some considerable progress before deciding against it. Yeah, um, I mean I ran it. You know, it, it existed enough for me to playtest the whole thing. Um but at the time that I was running it, um, I didn't have it all written down. Like it was just notes and ideas, and I was kind of making it up as I went along. So typical homebrew campaign. It was uh, it was a, it began with a disappearance uh, of a woman who had vanished, um, and you're investigating what happened there. Um, and sounds familiar. Yeah, and she had uh, <laughs> yeah, um, she had gotten involved with a cult um, that was a in yellow related cult. Um, and along the way, like I, you know, I had come up with um, the drug Melonia um, and the, uh, the, there's a weird thing with like um, these sort of golden yellow insects, these like, uh, like oh yeah, like got gold bugs. Yeah. Um, they were part of that because essentially if you took too much, if you took too much Melonia, then you're, um, your brain would basically be infested with these gold bugs and they would come out your eyes, like your eyes and burst, these bugs come pouring down your face and stuff. Um, and so all that was in the campaign, um, along with this cult. Um, there was, uh, someone who was trying to find the woman and his name was JC Lenz, who became the character in Rod Allen and Impossible Landscapes. And I, like, I don't, I think in some ways when I ran it, it was a, Fairly conventional Cthulhu campaign, like it was a cult and a ritual and a missing person. So, like it was yeah. fairly conventional. It's just the trappings were King and Yellow related. Um, and then there was a uh, climactic sequence where they went to Carcosa to try to find her. Um, yeah. And what I recall was that I think the deal was with how you got there was that the um, the cult ritual happened on a lake. And there was a like a floating dock uh, on the lake where you needed to be. And if you were there when the ritual went off, then um, the dock would kind of invert and be upside down. And now you were on a floating dock on the lake of Ali, or the shore of the place. And from there, you yeah. then get to shore and then go explore the city and so forth. So that was sort of the concept. Um, I remember there was a villain, this the cult leader guy was a you know some villain dude. I can't recall his name, it was the was. I still have somewhere various like outlines and things. I had a really hard time trying to write this thing. And I remember one day when I wrote a huge amount of it and then lost the file, like the file got trashed or something. We've all been there. Yeah, and that that's kind of when I stalled and I began working on writing outlines for it and I wrote you know, an outline for the whole campaign and then I wrote another outline and another outline and I just kind of got lost. It was like House of Leaves. I, it just like I got lost in these manuscripts 
and all these different drafts of the, of the concept for the campaign. Um, and at the same time, I was running Pagan, and I was in school full-time still, trying to finish my college degree. So I ended up just, just getting up on the whole thing. But that was, that's what I remember of it. It's just something we, we've talked about your college degree and, and like all this amazing work. I mean, at university, I I drank beer. <laughs> I think I wasn't as, as as beautifully creative as yourself. But I don't think we've mentioned what oh, the college um, degree was. What, what were you uh, studying? Inexplicably, um, I got my degree in broadcast journalism. So, yeah, so when I was in college, right. um, I was uh, working at the um, – the school of journalism at that, that school, um, they own a radio station and a TV station and a newspaper. And, and this is the, like the big thing about them. Like none of them are like the student paper. It's like the actual city newspaper that everyone needs. Like they, they run that paper. They run the, one of the radio stations and like a full on like NBC TV station where they show like friends and stuff. And also everyone on the newscast is a child. Like it's, it's like a 19 year old, 20 year old kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is super weird, but that's the deal. Uh, so I was working on the radio station. I was hosting a talk show there. I was a reporter on the on the TV station, doing stuff there as part of my my college curriculum work. Um, and in between, I was running Pagan from my first one dorm room, and then from a, a house that I rented. Yeah, it was it was nuts. Um, and uh, my grades before I started Pagan were better than my grades after I started Pagan. <laughs> But do you, do you think your journalism's bled into sort of your your creative ideas? Because I'm just struck now about why you might like research and patterns and connections and try, try, trying to see something and work out what's going yeah. on. Is there is there any element of that? I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, because I was in the broadcast journalism department, um, like that focus is like get the story done and get it on the air the same day. Right. Like it's, you know, yeah. in your car, go out, interview somebody, shoot some footage, write some stuff, come back to the station, put it together, slap it on TV, do it again tomorrow. Um, it's not, you're not at that level, you're not really doing like long form stuff that's going to be like taking weeks to do investigative reporting or whatever. Um, we, we learned about those things, but what I was doing was the day in, day out that stuff. Um, but I mean, Journalism is fascinating, and storytelling is storytelling in any medium or any, any format. Um, so I think I definitely did learn. You know, the, the, the most useful thing I learned out of that degree program was how to ask for questions. Like prior to then, if I was at a party or something, I wouldn't know what to say to anybody. And what I discovered in that program is that if you just ask people questions about themselves, like where do you live, what do you do, you know, what do you do for fun, once you begin to answer, you can then ask the next question, the next question, the next question, and follow up on that. And then they will talk and talk and talk, and they will think that you are super interesting because you're interested in them. And that's, that's what I learned from, the, from that program. Okay, next question, Griff. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this is from Patrick Smatrick, which I don't think is a real name. <laughs> Mrs. Smatrick is deeply offended that you think that. <laughs> <laughs> um, regarding unknown armies, uh, Patrick says, I love the system and the ideas and the setting, but I find it hard to sell or define it to potential players. How do you define unknown armies? Well, I mean, that's been the first one on Armies from the beginning, uh, is that it was difficult to explain to people. Um, and a lot of what I tried to do in the second edition of Unknown Armies was to make it easier to start campaigns, at least. 
kind of give you examples of what a group of characters might be like and so forth. Um, but like Unknown Armies came out of a, a particular matrix of um, novels and films that I had seen and read, that Greg Stolze had seen and read. And if you were kind of clued into those works at that time in the late 90s, early 2000s, then you'd be like, oh, yeah, finally, this is great. And if you didn't know that stuff, if you hadn't read Ten Powers or you hadn't watched the lunch movies or whatever, or seen like Clive Barker's movie, Lord of Illusions, which is a very Unknown Armies kind of movie, um, then, yeah, it's hard to explain. It's not really something that's very accessible that way. Um, because often, like with Delta Green, we would make the joke that uh, we tell people, if they just ask, like, what's this Delta Green thing? We'd say, oh, it's like uh, Tom Clancy meets Stephen King, is the way we talk about it. But we knew it was actually H.P. Lovecraft meets John Le Carre. Like, that's what it is. That's Delta Green. Um, and with Unknown Armies, you know, we would say, like, oh, it's like uh, Tim Powers meets Quentin Tarantino or something. But it's like, you know, then, then you usually get, like, who's Tim Powers? What? So there never was a great way to talk about it. Um, what I would say to people, if anything, was that it is about Unknown Armies is about a world that you can work whatever magic you believe in. If you believe something about the world, you can make that real. And that is both an awesome power and also a terrible purpose. And that's that's kind of what the game is about. That's what I would say. That's pretty, like, kind of highfalutin. I don't really know how to say it better because I can't point to, like, one movie and be like, oh, it's like the Avengers, except you're John Constantine. Like, I don't know. I don't, even, I don't know what the hell I'd say about that. So that was always a problem on the movies, was it was hard to communicate. If you got the vibe and you read the book, you're like, yeah, this is my thing. Then you loved it. And if you didn't, then, you know, you just bounced off. Um, that was a lesson that I did not learn from White Wolf, where they made a role-playing game whose name was literally Vampire. What's that about? Well, guess. Like, it's, it's pretty clear what Vampire's about. And then the next game was Werewolf. What's that one about? Guess what? It's about Werewolf. Like, that was... But to be, to be fair, it went downhill from there, though. <laughs> and eventually it's Mummy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's the thing. It, it was it was tough to explain, um, and it was, there was no one genre that it represented. It was kind of a mix of things, um, but it really it was just it was just like this sort of pre millennial soup of weirdness and chaos magic and strange things that were happening in the culture that all felt coherent to me and to Greg, but uh, it's it's never been as a result it's never been as popular as Delta Green. You know, it's it's funny because you said about the idea about uh, if you believe in something strong enough, uh, you can make it happen, like some sort of magic. Is this reaching back to, to like Alistair Crowley? Do what that will, and that will be the whole of the law kind of thing. I mean, sure, in, in the broad sense that um, other armies represents you know elements of magical traditions um, that we kind of chopped up and remixed. Um, <clears throat> I think the. Like there's lots of inspirations there, um, but the the very specific thing that first got me thinking in that direction, which didn't bear fruit for like a decade, was uh, there's a comic book writer, uh, Grant Morrison, um, who was writing uh, Animal Man and um, the, Doom, the Doom Patrol back in those days. Animal Man, that series is fantastic. Yeah. His, his run of, of uh, Animal Man. Yeah, I was reading Animal Man and Doom Patrol around the same time period, um, and they're incredible. 
And he talked in an interview about uh, chaos magic, which is sort of this, at the time, you know, kind of a magical practice uh, in the real world of bringing your own symbols and beliefs to your ritual. So instead of having like a picture of, you know, the Virgin Mary or, you know, um, uh, you know, St. Germain or Blavatsky or whatever it is, you might have a, a, a ritual space with photographs of your grandparents or the first dog you ever had. You bring in images and um, elements that are from your own life and from your own beliefs and your own interests, your own passions, and you you tap into those to, you know, practice your magic whatever it is. That's kind of what I understand. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. And what I knew at that time for magic was like, Crowley stuff, like the black magic you'd see like in a Hammer Horror movie or something, you know, that kind of stuff, or mm-hmm. the supernatural stuff in other movies. So thinking that you could do magic by pulling in your own belief system and your own symbols and metaphors was, a, at the time, like in high school, I read that interview, I was just like, that's wild, what is the other thing? So in London Armies, um, that's where all the Mansies came from, because it's not like there's one thing, it's like Here's this man. Here's this man. Here you can be just all these different kinds of wizards, basically, and magic people. Um, but for you, it's the universe. Like if I'm a uh, um, the uh, flesh wizard, the flesh man, so I can't remember right now. Um, Epidermancer. Um, to you, the body, your body specifically, like that is the cosmos. Like the entire universe is bound up in my skin, and what I do to my skin then manifest out into the world because that's for me like that's everything but on the dipsomancer it's booze it's getting drunk it's the liberation of the consciousness it's like as i consume alcohol and the way that i can associate differently in my head and i can be more expressive and my, my true self can kind of emerge with a spirit um like then for them like that's the cosmos that's the way the world works all of that and thinking through all the mansies together that's grant morrison's chaos I guess what that means. That was the beginnings of it. Now, there's obviously archetypes and from the avatars and much more, but that was the nugget of it um, and how it began. See, because unknown armies sit in a strange place with me because I actually don't own a copy, but I've played it. Uh, I actually played um, Scott Dorwood's run, have you heard of Lamppost and Bloom? Um, he, he ran that for us and it was, it scarred me for life. <laughs> Whereas Griff has read it but never played it. But I've never played it. I've never. I've never got the chance because it appeared. I had a hiatus away from gaming. Um, when I went into yeah. the games industry and started to have children, I went. I should leave my childish <laughs> things behind, and it was a huge mistake because that's when all the cool stuff happened. <laughs> and then I come back and suddenly, and people, you, you know, I was dragged. I was dragged back mm. in by Delta Green. Conversation, chance conversation in a pub. Somebody said, we're talking about a friend was working on the Call of Cthulhu computer game that was made locally. And I said, I used to play that as a child, you know, as a child, all grown (laughs) up now. And he said, oh, that's not cool anymore, Call of Cthulhu. He said, Delta Green is cool. And and, and he gave me, we had a drunken conversation where he, he hit me with Delta Green. And, uh, and and then I started to come back into it. So I went off and got all that. And Unknown Armies was another one of those games. So I've read it, and I agree with you. Tim Powers 
I, I get that because I'm a big Tim Powers fan. And to me, I love any game that has its own um, mythology. And and the mythology of unknown armies is its own thing. And yet at the same time, like Tim Powers, you go, but is, is there anything to that in the real world? You know, it almost feels like it should exist. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that came about because um, after years of Cthulhu and 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 the old adult green effect. Um, I spent so much time doing historical research and occult research and all that kind of stuff and and uh conspiracy theories and UFO lore, like all like all that stuff, right? There's tons of it. All the kind of Western occult tradition, um, the Rosicrucians and um the Priory de Sion, the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Bloodline of Christ, like all that stuff. Like there's tons of it. And um and I was all like I was knee deep in this. I was immersed in it. I loved it. I was reading all this stuff and so forth. And then I read uh, Umberto Eco's novel, The Post Pendulum, which is about that stuff. It's about conspiracies and the, and the Bowman of Christ and all that kind of business. And it's a great book. It's really interesting. Um, and he does such a great job of like pulling all that together and both talking about how, like, wouldn't this be amazing? And also, this is terrible and stupid and makes no sense. And like, all that together is like bound up in that novel. It's great. And when I got done with that, I was like, that's amazing. And now I can never do anything with any of that material ever again. Because he, he's done such a great job of like talking about it and living it and pulling it together. It's it's like he made the role-playing game of it, ran the first campaign for three years or whatever, finished it, and then like there's nothing else to do. Like it's done. It's burned up. So I wanted to, I needed a break from all that stuff, um, all that history of the culture and stuff. And I wanted to create my own mythology. Um, and I realized, like, well, duh, that's what Lovecraft did. Like, Lovecraft made his own mythology. You know, he didn't he didn't pull in, like, Satan and God and, you know, all that kind of stuff or, or anything else or even, like, werewolves or vampires. Like, he made up his own mythology from scratch. And certainly he had influence and inspirations, um, but it was its own thing. And that's what has made it so enduring, I think, is that just like that, that, that mythos he created, not meaning it to be an encyclopedia or something, but like it was just weird. It was really idiosyncratic and it was like nothing else. You know, at the same time, the stories were appearing, people were writing like, it's a ghost, it's a mummy, it's a vampire kind of stories. And he was writing the power of space, which yeah. like, what even is that? You know, like today we look at it and go like, oh, it's like radiation or something. It's some kind of weirdly fading virus or something like what? But that's the thing, like he was doing that kind of work. So for the armies, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to look at I wanted to make up a new mythology uh, and try new things that felt to me much more contemporary and kind of grounded in the real world and, and trying to engage with the world instead of escape from it. Um, and so on the armies, is, is meant to be like a set of filters you can use to look through to see the world through other characters' eyes, you know, there other worldviews, like epidermancers and diplomancers and everything else. Like to see the world anew was really kind of like a, a big goal for that game. Okay. Um I've got, I've actually got one of the questions here was are you planning on writing more Delta Green? But we've already covered yeah. that. Um so this one is from at Xanthoth. I don't know. Um where did the association with clockwork and marionettes in your version of the Carcosa mythos come from? I think we've stumped them. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get the chronology right. Um, I took a, I think, circa like 
read in 95 or 6, somewhere in there. Um, I made several trips to the UK and to Ireland for conventions I was going to. Um, when I worked at Wizards for the first time, uh, they um, had a branch in Glasgow. Um, and I went to go visit with those guys for a few days uh, for some work stuff. Um, and somewhere in there, I mean, I had a lot of great experiences that were formative creatively, but um, one of them was that uh, I saw an exhibit of automata, um, like vintage, you know, 19th century, 18th century, 17th century automata. And um, it was incredible. And I, I ended up buying a bunch of posters from the exhibition to bring home and like put them on my wall and stuff. And from there, I did end up reading about the Mechanical Turk and other historical automata projects and weird things like that. And I just kind of had that on the brain, I think. It was such a, it wasn't just like an idea or an engineering feat. It was also kind of an aesthetic, um, which I guess now we call, we call steampunk, I suppose. But um, at the time, it was just automata. Uh, and I was fascinated by that. So that whole world of these like brilliantly engineered mechanical marbles, which I mean, people could make them today, but they don't. Um, and figuring out how to make them would not be impossible, but would be very difficult because the skills required are a lot of them are kind of gone. Like people don't make watches by hand anymore for this part, right? And that level of work yeah. is, you know. Hard to find. Um, so I don't know. I find them fascinating, and they were just kind of on my on my mind uh, when Unknown Armies came along. And I, I began Unknown Armies began as a short story um, I wrote uh, called The Course of Winter, um, which is about um, the main character is Eponymous, who works for uh, Alex Abel's New Inquisition, and Eponymous is sent to uh, recover the Naked Goddess Bibliotheque, which is in the um, and it's at the home of a clockworker. And so he goes to the clockworker's house, this like old, crumbling, like Victorian house in, outside Chicago or something, and has to deal with like a weird clockwork defense creature that's there. Um, and then eventually recovers the tape and comes back to the you know, position again. That was the, that was really when we began with a short story. Um, and I wrote several more short stories about Alex Abel and Eponymous and Nick Battle State and that kind of stuff. And have been working on that material. I worked on it with a uh, an artist in town uh, to try and write a comic book. I was going to make a comic book, um, and I wrote scripts for the first the first issue to adapt that short story. He drew a bunch of pages for it, um, but then he got busy and we, it fell apart. And never went back to it again. And so after that was when I was like, "Hey, Greg Stolte, pal, would you mind designing a game system and let's make this thing a role playing game?" And he was like. This is crazy and messed up. Absolutely, let's do it. So, um, that's kind of where that gets started. Fair. I mean, it, it does. It does kind of fit the aesthetic, as you said. It, it and as, and again, there's something uncanny valley about marionettes as well, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I should say puppets. I have a whole separate track of history with um, because uh, when I was uh, I don't know, like nine or ten, somewhere in there, um, I found this book at the library in like the hobby area or something. It was about uh, making finger puppets. And it was, it was like a book of like, you know, here's how to make finger puppets. Um, and I was interested in that as a kid. And, um, but there's a chapter in that book that was all about Punch and Judy. Um, and it explains Punch and Judy and what the story of Punch and Judy traditionally is with the baby and the beetle and so forth and the crocodile or whatever and the devil. 
um, in the hangman. And it had patterns you could use to create a set of punch and judy fingerprints. And so out of the whole book, like mostly they were just like innocuous fingerprints. But the punch and judy story just like burned itself into my brain. Um, and that's a book I checked out again and again and again just to reread that one chapter obsessively over and over again. I was so fascinated by it. And I managed to browbeat my mother into making me a set of Punch and Judy finger puppets. Um, and then I began writing, uh, puppet shows for them, um, where they would have their various adventures. And so I would then perform Punch and Judy finger puppet shows for my family. Um, and they didn't really resemble the original story as you would know it from like Brighton Beachside shows or whatever. Um, at various times, Punch had a biplane. <laughs> um, he was menaced by uh, an enemy known as the Present People, who looked like gift-wrapped Christmas packages with like bows on top. And it was like a stack of sentient Christmas presents that he had to like fight or something with a stick. Um, it was a lot of bizarre stuff. It was surreal as hell. Um, and I would do those shows, and I'd write the scripts. And I had a um, this like uh, uh, like a wicker basket that I would take with me to, like, on the backseat of the car. My parents were driving me along with some dumb thing. I'd sit in the back of the room with my basket, in which I had my finger puppets and my scripts that I'd written, like, by hand on paper. Um, and I would just play my finger with my punch and finger puppets obsessively while my parents were busy going to church or doing whatever they were doing. So puppets um, were a thing for me since I was a kid. Uh, and that whole world of, like, puppets and automata and Frankenstein and, you know, um, all, all that whole world, uh, just kind of all came together in various ways and expressed itself in the King Yellow stuff and Puppet Land, of course, um, and with the clockwork uh, folks in the lines as well. It's all, it's all just there. So it's, 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 it's essentially your own kind of love of puppets. Yeah. Seems to have leaked into various things. Yeah. I mean, love, um, fear. <laughs> 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 I mean, that's, actually, a, that's a bit of a Venn diagram at times, though, isn't it? Is. Actually, you know, <laughs> oh my word, that's terrifying! That's, uh... <laughs> that is a that that I'm going to have. I, I loved puppets until then. <laughs> so that is, you know uh... the exact moment when you can tell your psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that is brilliant. Yeah, so this is it's not actually. Puppet per se, it's kind of a doll, but um, this is Punch from Puppetland. Um, when yeah. uh, Samuel Araya did the artwork for Puppetland, he built this this doll um, and then photographed it and then composited that doll photos into his paintings and so forth. That's kind of how kind of his method works. He's a multimedia artist or mixing the artist. Um, and when I began seeing the pieces that he was doing, I was like, I've got to have punch, please. How can I have punch myself? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I have punch now. And um, my family does not like him. And so I... I wonder why. <laughs> I, I keep him uh, in this closet back here and ensure that he can't get so out. sometimes find, find the door open of a night. And he's moved. Not if I have <laughs> conducted the rituals properly of binding each day. Oh, well, well, yeah, <laughs> that was the next question. You, if you're doing the rituals properly, be fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, next question from you, Griff. 
Well, well, while we're here, I'm going to skip forward a few in the list. We'll come back to those, obviously. This is from our friend Guy Milner. When is the Puppetland Delta Green crossover source book coming? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. I, I would, uh, I feel like if anything, um, there should have been a scene in Impossible Landscapes where the players play Puppetland together at the table. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's what the director's cut then, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's like the TV series community did a couple episodes where the characters become stop-motion animation characters themselves, and the entire episode is like an animated series, an animated special kind of thing. Um, doing that with the Delta Green operation, where partway through, you you now play out your operation as puppets, would be kind of awesome, actually. So, yeah, who knows? That that, that would be awesome. Yeah, like you all get dosed with Melania or something, and then you're like, I'm a puppet, what the hell? And then you play the operation. Suddenly out. you've got strings and all, yeah. Yeah, that would be, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make sure to let Dennis know. There you go. <laughs> uh, so, my next question is from Kenny Graham Convergence is still the foundation or definitive Delta Green scenario. With appropriate spoiler alerts in place, can you give us an example of the most successful outcome for agents that have ever played the scenario? Well, I've only ever run it once. Um, when I oh, really? when I ran it back for my you know my friend at Pagan Publishing uh, back in the day when I first played that sort of, um, that's it's the only time I've ever run convergence. I mean, it, it went great. Uh, I think like probably the two. Well, I don't know. There were a lot of memorable moments in that adventure, but um, certainly I think probably anyone who plays it, uh, the scene in the bathroom at the motel. Um, works yeah. <laughs> works like gangbusters. That <laughs> when I when I told them that the uh, the mass on the corpse's forehead, you know, they kind of got busy with something, looked back, and it was gone, and <laughs> that didn't go well. Uh, and yeah, they really freaked out. That was great. Um, another thing that worked really well is actually I did an audio clue um, for that adventure which is, it's referenced in the text. Um, and back in the day, you could download the file from like America Online or something. But it, yeah, you can get it from the Delta Green website. Oh yeah, you know? that's right. It's on the, yeah. Yeah, so I made, that, I made that audio file. I recorded the audio and distorted it and stuff to make it sound strange. And, I made, and then I made it backwards. I played it backwards. And then I just led my players out of the room to my computer and was like, here's the program you find and here's this audio file, go. And they had never used a software before. Like they never had messed with stuff. But just began like dorking around with it and playing it and trying it out. And at some point they're like, this sounds like it's backwards. Is there a way can we can reverse this? And they looked at the program and they found a way to, to flip it back and reverse it. And as soon as they did and they hit play and the voice came out and you could hear it now and you could tell what it was saying, I remember the look on their face that they were just like, holy shit. <laughs> that was great. See, th this... This is a two-part question, okay, because the, the second part that Kenny Graham has asked is, given the modest origins of Delta Green and looking at its status now in the RPG community, is there a standout moment or award or example of cultural influence either within gaming or without that would encapsulate his or his or the original gang's pride in that success? Hmm. Um, it's hard to say that any one thing outside of the uh, Kickstarter for the Adult Green RPG and what a watershed moment that was for all of us. 
I think if anything, it's just the how over the years I've met like random people through my work um, who are like, did you work on Delta Green? And like, that's happened, you know, over the years. And it's always fun, always surprising, and you never know what's going to be. Um, and finding that people just have that passion for it, that they're still excited about all these years and seeing that show up. You know, I'm in the uh, um, Delta Green Reddit fairly often. And I, I just love seeing people doing that. Uh, just, just reading what they're doing and what they're like, they're making props and handouts and BTC elements and so forth. Um, and I love all that. It's fun to see. It's, it's great to see the creativity because that's the, it's, it's funny, like with role playing games versus video games, um, role playing games not only provide an opportunity for player creativity, they require it. Like you actually have to creatively engage with the work to, to enjoy the experience, to even make it happen. The game master has to make up the adventure or, or run an adventure or whatever. The players have to figure out what the characters are, what they're going to do. Like the creative act is is just woven throughout. In video games, it's different. It's there. A lot of it manifests um, as like uh, like panels or other like cultural products that are made by fans of the video game about the about the game. Um, but they don't necessarily have to bring that level of creativity to the playing of the game. There's other aspects of video games that require all kinds of imagination and intuitive problem solving and stuff, but like creating stories, creating characters, creating worlds, making big dramatic decisions uh, is something that, that our role-playing games will excel on. So with Delta Green, um, having now seen decades of like the shotgun scenario um, or all the various stuff created by the community. I mean, at this point, they've made more delivering content than we have, right? Get it all, add it all together. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which is also true for D&D. It's true for everything, for all these, you know, all these things. Um, it's just phenomenal. Like, it's incredible to see. And to have a medium that inspires people to do that kind of work is amazing. And for Delta Green to inspire people to discuss and debate and rehash and explore and extend and change and bitch and whine and complain and everything else they do uh, is just phenomenal. Like, it's amazing to see. So that's, I, I think the totality of that, of the community itself, is the most exciting thing. The big cultural moments that I, that stands out, not, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm not one of the creators, but as someone who's, who's, who's written and spoke a lot about it, was when you say, um, True Detective Season 1, people get it. Yeah. Having seen right. through Detective season one, they they kind of make that like oh, so it's like an investigative. There could be something supernatural going. They get it straight away. Yeah. Um. Okay, Griff. We've only got a couple of questions left. We won't keep you all all day. I'm sure you got better things to do. Sorry. Um. Okay, then. Um. Next question I've got. Uh. This is another forward thinking one. We've all already talked about this. Um. But I'll, I'll ask it. It's from Michaelis. Um. Are there any specific themes or stories you would like to explore for Delta Green if given the opportunity? We know that you might not yeah, have yeah. that for a little while, but what, what's your burning? What 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 are burning ideas for Delta Green for you? You know, I mean, there were ideas I had for the Labyrinth that I didn't use, and they're, I think they're both actually referenced in there a little bit, just barely. Um, one was, um, I think it's called The Sons of Eric, uh, which was going to be a um, uh, Aryan Nordic white supremacist motorcycle gang um, in 
the Great Lakes region of the United States who would have a supernatural element to them. Um, and, and their, their worship of, you know, the Norse gods or whatever, like, or just masks or something else, of course. Um, and I thought that was an interesting group and I wanted to work with them, but I wasn't sure how to do it in a way that wasn't just like, holy crap, Odin is now open up, right? Like, this that sounded kind of terrible. <laughs> so I, I didn't do it. Um, but I love that milieu and those kind of characters. And I thought that'd be an interesting thing to explore, uh, as kind of like a, you know, small time Karatekia kind of group. Um, but I ended up using them in the labyrinth. They turned up a couple times. Uh, I think I'm mainly in the Witness Alliance chapter. So I might go back to them at some point. Who knows? The other one was, um, I had an idea for a while of, uh, <laughs> I don't know. This is, this is pretty ridiculous. Um, in, in America, um, there were and are these, um, billionaire industrialists known as the Cockbirds, K-O-C-H. Um, and they're super rich, super right wing. Um, they're, they fund all kinds of political candidates. They're into like, uh, denying climate change. They're into, um, Christian fundamentalism. Um, they're into all kinds of weird stuff. And I started thinking like, what if they were serpent people? <laughs> and specifically, what if they want the earth to warm up? Because they want to get back to the Cambrian era when they ruled the world. And certain people's civilizations had like their vast cities and temples and it was all swamp and it's all, you know, humid and hot all the time. And like, that's they're after. They're trying to warm the planet up to, to get back to the Cambrian era and rule the world. Uh, and that, that made me laugh. Um, but I decided I couldn't take it seriously enough to actually write about it. If you told me that was real, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they they turn up. I think they they sort of obliquely turn up in um, the sewers chapter uh, because the one day because I had because this actually happened. Um, There's a Christian fundamentalist for I think it was actually the park Brothers who funded it, um, who were doing like a tour, of, like a museum tour of artifacts from early Christianity. Um, which it turned out in some cases had been stolen or were fake. Um, it was kind of a scandal. And that seemed like, well, yeah, sure. We're going to be like stealing and dummying up artifacts and stuff. And probably once you begin doing that in a completely related activity, like one of them is going to be real and it's going to be bad news. That'd be like, that'd be kind of fun to do. So they, they, they did end up very obliquely turning up in the storage, but not for real. So I don't know. Like that stuff is there. Um, I like, I like writing about groups. I mean, groups are interesting, factions or whatever. And um, if anything, I think I like doing that even more than writing operations because I think uh, like a, <laughs> a faction is a wish your heart makes. A faction lasts forever. Like a faction can show up in campaign after campaign. They can be an ongoing storyline. They can be villains that recur. An operation, you run it, you're done. You move on. Um, I like durable organizations. And one of the things I did in the labyrinth was try to make the villains hard to defeat. Not because they had a fortress, but because they had lawyers, because they had money, because they had connections and influence. Um, yeah. because they could, they could make life hard for your agents if you mess with them. Because they're not a backwoods, you know, inbred family in Dunwich who's trying to, you know, raise young soap off. They're a church. They're a fertility clinic. 
You know, they're just like ordinary, like yeah. seemingly ordinary groups who live publicly. Like they, they have websites, they have press releases, like they're legit in every reasonable way. But at the top, at the hearts of the organizations, there's something horrible. And that to me was way more interesting than, um, uh, than the caretaker, you know, love the caretaker, you know, but like they're evil cult Nazis, you tell them you're done. Move on. Um, these groups are much harder to stop out. No, that was impressionable. I mean, could could you not write these for like something like the unspeakable oath as articles? Anyway, I mean, it's one of those things like I have to go talk to the lawyers and see what they say. And like, yeah, I get up there. I get up. I don't think so. And my writing, my writing time is very limited, so I gotta pick what I can. Okay, so the next question is from someone called Lich Daniel, all one word. I don't know how that important that is. <laughs> um, the recently released campaigns and possible landscape and God's Teeth, and I'm surprised they haven't included it, but Iconoclast as well. They focus on a major myth austerity. There's also uh, Shubna Gurath in the Labyrinth's New Life Fertility. Are there any other great old ones that could work well as antagonists in a large-scale Delta Green story? Um, I don't want to give this away, so I won't, uh, but Scott Glancy is working on something like that, uh, using an entity that um, definitely would never have made my top 10 list. Like, when he said he was working with this, I was like, really? Like, why are you working with that? But uh, he had a really good take on it, a really interesting idea. Yeah. Um, the My good life operation, um, I'll again avoid specifics, but um, it does deal with a great old one sort of thing. Um it's not, I and mean, it's a one adventure, the wild thing, but uh, it deals with one that has not gotten a lot of airtime while these, uh, and dates back to the Lovecraft era of all of the writers and stuff around the time. Um, so the chance to take that entity, deity, um, and I knew that if I was going to use it, I had to come up with something interesting about it that I hadn't seen before that was different and unusual and Gave it a reason why it should exist, besides the fact that somebody wrote a story about it in retail seven years ago, or eight hundred years ago. And I figured that out, and I have that in there. So it is a new take on a familiar entity from way back when. Um, okay. But I can't say what that is. But I just want to spoil it, so I'll leave that alone. I guess that's the, go ahead. So I was just say, avoiding spoilers, I was really surprised that the main antagonist of God's Teeth was. Oh yeah. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah, really, really, really surprised. <laughs> it's such yeah. it's such a clever take on it, though. It is. I mean, that's the thing. Like all those years that Palafitulu uh, was, you know, was around, it still is, of course. But you know, they had that giant um, list of gods. You know, here's the stats for Azathoth and so forth, and. Um, that dates back to like the monster name, right? It dates back to D and D, and like you know, yeah. of course, if you're gonna put as a top in your in your game, you gotta have staff for the top. But like that's ridiculous. Like it's patently ridiculous that there's like stats for the top. Like, what is this charisma? Like you know, it's, it's it's nonsense. Um, these are entities that are, you know, bigger than the world. Like they are they are they are breakers of reality. Um, so whenever we work with that stuff. We try to figure out, in some degree, how can we make it interesting in a new way we've not seen before, 
but also like how can we turn it into not literally but like how do we personify how does it get expressed through someone's life or choices um because you don't just want like there's a tentacle in a pit and you walk near it it, it is some point damage to you what you want is for that tentacle in that pit to uh cause someone to have a bad day at work and make a bad choice about their parenting like that's how you take it into the room and so you got to like how do you take that that abstract like goofy thing and like make it very concrete um that's what uh the operation last things last does so well not that there's a deity there but like it personifies the horror and the personal stakes the conflict the relationship the intimacy I think yeah. Delta Green is is maybe a, a great example of like intimate horror because the things you face and deal with filter down to your family, your friends, your relationships. Um, and that's what we want to really establish is that there's this horrible price you pay. Um, so I think when we talk about great old ones and bringing back gods and doing some fun stuff with them, you know, it, it isn't like I even have a particular favorite. Like the one that I use for the good life. I didn't give a crap about that guy. Like, it's, a, it's a fairly obscure mythos deity. I never cared about this thing. But it was thematically relevant to what I was trying to do and the story I wanted to tell. And when I looked at, you know, the deities and mythos and so forth, and I was like, well, this fits with that, and that fits with this, so it should be this particular deity. And if so, crap, I hate that god. It's terrible. What can I do to make this thing something interesting and different? And so that's, that's how you end up there. So I don't really start with a deity. I start with a story. And then I find my way to mm. the supernatural yeah. side of things. Okay, then this is from Critical Troll. Um, I know the King in Yellow is, you. Uh, I should say it again, Critical Troll. Yes, yeah, I know. I, I, I that. Yeah. That's a winner. <laughs> my. My accent defeated it. Um, I know the King in Yellow is usually associated with 1800s France or the 1920s, but what kind of avatars or locations do you think would fit in 2023? What would be the new Hotel Broad Albion? Well, let's talk about Albion Eternal, so it's always around. Um, but, uh, I mean, The Lonely was my uh, chance to work with that. Um, that was to... If you read the, the chamber stories, you know, they're about artists and so forth. Um, but they're, they're pretty like kind of marginal people, marginalized people. Um, the artists of the mask, um, or of, uh, the yellow sign. Um, of course, the, uh, main character of the repair reputations, which to me is maybe like the most iconic chamber story. He's insane. Like he fell from his horse, he like got brain damage or something. He's a he's a lunatic, apparently. Um, but much like on the army's character, it, it seems almost as if his madness is changing the world that he perceives. Um, and he's even found somebody else who believes in it too. Um, Hobart, the armorer, um, who is or Mr. Wild, I should say, who is super messed up. So yeah, like the lonely was my taking another swing at chambers in the modern day and trying to do something with that type of character, a person who is kind of invisible on the edges of society, um, and who has emotional damage 
And, and what's true in the end, like, are they damaged because they're marginalized? Are they marginalized because they're damaged? It doesn't really matter. But um, in the end, they are those people who are easy to ignore and who are, if anything, it's pleasurable to ignore them because you engage with them like they're really irritating. I remember being at a coffee house once years ago and had, a, had my laptop there and this guy with this like huge backpack full of all kinds of stuff just begins talking about it. And he's talking about my laptop and he just want to know like what OS it ran or whatever it was. And then he spent like 10 minutes telling me in great detail how he had configured his laptop to be secure from the government's the conspiracy, whatever it was he was on about. And he was talking about software. He's like really talking to me about how he secured his computer, the physical security, electrical security, like all that kind of stuff. And just going on and on. And I, this is just like some random guy in a coffee house, just like, like vomiting words at me. And clearly he had some kind of mental issue. He was just like monologuing at me for as long as I could stand it. And I finally had to tell him to stop talking. I was like, I, I think, I think I, I think I just said like, I've had enough and I've got to go. And he's like, Oh, okay. okay never mind. But like that guy, like that was the lonely. Like that's one of those kind of people. Who just yeah. have gotten so they've fallen down their own rabbit hole that they dug and they can't get out of it. Um, so that's like that to me is is very um expressive of those kind of people that we saw in Chamber Stories. And 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 moving them forward in the timeline. Like Chamber Stories are about marginal people who kind of like encounter the stuff and begin to become unhinged or have reality unhinged around them. The lonely is like the sequel, like what happens next once they've been corroded in that way. What do they become? Um, I think this is the thing. This, this gets back to the intimacy of Delta Green. Like that's what we care about. We care about the characters involved. It isn't the clever plots. God knows. Like what is the plot of Impossible Landscapes? I mean. Trying to find Abigail <laughs> That's Wright. a good point, to be fair. I guess, like, yeah, like you want to find Abigail rights, and then you spend 20 years not doing it, you know, like who knows? Like that's it's not about the plot or the cleverness of the scenario, it's about the characters you interact with and, and why they're significant or interesting or damaged or whatever. That, that, that's what keeps drawing us back, I think. So with the King in Yellow, I mean what kind of aesthetic things that connect to it for me that make me think of like the King in Yellow? Um and I've, I've pulled in references to those and different things I've written. But um, it's got to express through a character. If it doesn't, it's just, it's just bad. It's just on the page. See, because um, I, I think uh, I think modernising it kind of misses the point to a degree. Because one thing, I, I, when, I, when I, I, I did a massive video on The King in Yellow, about six and a half hours talking about it, broke it up into many parts. And for me, it was... The story is one of just crushing inevitability. It's the idea that you guys have been seen at the masquerade and that's where you're going to end up eventually. And I think modernising it kind of misses the point of crushing inevitability. You, you know, you're going to end up in this kind of old French-esque city at the ball of the king one way or another. And I think if, if you modernise it, you would lose a bit of that. Well, you would lose a lot of that for me. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I, I thought about as I was um, working on those stories, revising those stories, because they we go to Carcosa in those stories. 
Um, and, you know, Carcosa is an alien city. It's, it's literally like a different reality, a different whatever. Um, and maybe historically at some point was a people, like there would be the royal court of its hell and so forth. And I thought about, you know, if it's timeless, if it's beyond time, is it all times? Like, should I have some sort of a cell phone in, Car- in Carcosa? Which, you know, makes me laugh to think about it, but like, it, it can't just be one thing. It needs to be all things to all people to all times because the King Yellow doesn't have a calendar. He doesn't care what time it is or what year it is or anything, right? Mm-hmm. So I came around to think that the way you, the way you experience Carcosa, this has a lot to do with who you are and what your context is and where you come from what you and what you might see or think of. In the same way that, you know, people have um, a lot of dreams of being in houses that don't exist. We dream in houses all the time. I've had, um, I wouldn't call it a recurring dream, but like a recurring thing that's happened to me is that I have dreams many times over the years where I am in a spook house. And I mean, really like, like a commercial haunted house operated for profit by people in costumes, like a spook house, spook house. And in those dreams, I'm, I'm in the queue. I'm waiting to go in the spook house. That I'm in the spook house and I'm enjoying being in the spook house and there's people there with me. There might be people I know, might be made up people in my dream. Um, and pretty much invariably there's some part where I'm like behind the scenes of the spook house and seeing how it works. Um, and things happen in the spook house that could not happen in the real spook house. Like they're, they're, you know, it's, it's dream logic or they're impossible or whatever. But, um, that's my projection into my lived experience, right? And in the same way, I feel like if I went to Carcosa, it'd be a spook house. And if someone else went to Carcosa, yeah. it'd be something else. So I, I think that's that's where you get the timeless quality is that it should vary, it should change. And while I've never put, you know, uh, cars in the Carcosa, you know, like, here's a big SUV driving down the street in Carcosa. Like, that'd be... That's, <laughs> That sounds terrible, right? But there'd be a way to do it that'd be super weird and nightmarish. Um, probably the SUV is hungry, that kind of thing, right? Like there'd be a way to do it. So I, I don't I'm not afraid of modernizing things, but I also don't like the lonely are not a period piece. They're meant to be right here and now. Like one of the lonely yeah. is a website, right? Like they, like it's all it's all right now, it's all all time. You can do it anywhere. You can have medieval female, you can have Pavement, whatever. I've not yet seen a uh, cave painting, you know, like somewhere in, in the, in the back, backwoods of France, with a uh, you know twenty thousand year old yellow sign carved and pig- or painted in pigments on the cave wall. But we could. That's a scenario. Right that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a I don't think there's a framework that we can't express that through. Have you ever mentioned your dreams of standing in a queue outside a spook house to Dennis before? No, probably not. Because don't forget there is that bit in Carcosa where you're queuing outside. (laughs) 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 And then the queue never seems to go down and you don't know how long you've been there. Yeah. Right. Okay, well, this kind kind of relates to my next question. Um, uh, This is from Togus. Or togas, I think I'd be. John is the author of the chapter on the Hastur mythos from the original Delta Green countdown. In that chapter, he lays out a, how a campaign involving the King in Yellow would or could play out. 
I'd like to know if there's any changes that Dennis made to the subject matter with Impossible Landscapes that you would have done differently. Um, you know, if there's anything that I wish Dennis had done in Impossible Landscapes, it would have been really more about the characters of mine that showed up in there and enabling them to connect. And that's just because I like my characters. Um, but the problem with that, and I'm thinking in particular of JC Lenz and Deborah Carter, um, because their relationship and the story about Alvin is important and they show up again in Sosostris. Um, and actually they, they're not the main characters of Sosostris, but they are really critical characters in Sosostris. And I personally would have liked to have a scene of the two of them and had their relationship manifest in some way. But that's just because I like my characters. <laughs> that's not because of any kingy old stuff whatsoever. I just think that relationship is, is interesting and, and, and important to me. Um, but no, like what Dennis did in Impossible Landscapes is is just bonkers. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane what he accomplished. Um, all the time that I was working on those stories, I would go back to Impossible Landscapes again and again to see, mostly because like I wanted the new version of my stories to be compatible with what he did. Yeah. I respected it so much. And I thought it like it'd be really fun if these things all like work together. And I swear every time I went back to impossible landscapes, I would find stuff that I hadn't seen before. Even stuff yeah. that, of, of my my characters and concepts and things. Like I'd be in the index looking up like JC Lens or something to find some bit that I want to check on. And there'd be like a page reference there, and I'd go back and look and see what that was. And like I never read it before. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, where did this show up? <laughs> the book what? messing with you, that is. Yeah, like it is such a a dense work and such an interconnected work. Um, and such a obviously a bizarre and amazing work that um I feel like you could read it for the rest of your life and never be done with it. Actually, I told this at one point that um whenever we run out of copies and have to go back for a new printing, you should just go in and change shit. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Like, yeah, just go like, you know, remove a scene, add a scene, change a name, whatever, and just like do that every single time you print the book until like every group they're all different. And then we'll probably talk to each other about it on the internet, you know, hey, that one part was like, guy just saying, like, what are you talking about? This is yeah, on page 73. <laughs> no, it's not, dude. What are you talking about? Like, God, that'd be amazing. I'd love that. I wish you would do that. Because when we spoke to Dennis a couple of months ago, he told us JC Linz was you. Yeah, well, it's uh, um, the name is, is me. Uh, my, my, I changed my name at one point when I got married, but uh, my birth name was uh, John Allen Times, JC Times. And then if you change initials oh. JC into JC, that's why he has that name. And then I changed times to Lens because people often mispronounce my name as Tens for their Lens. Oh, okay. That makes but, sense now. Yeah. But he, I mean, he is kind of my, you know, my avatar in that, in that, that ability. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I've got two questions left. How many have you got, Griff? I've got, uh, I've got one question left uh, because we, we covered quite a lot. Um, uh, I know what this one is. The, 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 <laughs> yeah. The, the, this, uh, shall I ask Marjorie's question? Yeah, go on. <laughs> I can't, I can't. So, so we've got, 
we've got like a role playing pioneer on the show, <laughs> uh, and um, somebody we're both huge fans of, with books scattered everywhere. But the the burning question is, what is your favourite cheese? <laughs> uh, I do love cheese. Um, and well, how, yeah. Um, oh yeah, Manchego. That's a good answer. No Manchego. Oh Manchego. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't quite pick that up. Manchego. I've I've never eaten that one. That sounds that sounds. It's posh. Delicious Spanish cheese. Uh, it's not posh. Like it's Spanish. it's like <laughs> like Spanish peasants eat Manchego. It's delicious. Uh, it's kind of oily. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. See the, that 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 question was asked by you know Paul Michener. Oh yeah, sure. The, the writer that was written by his partner Marjorie, because we have we have a chat we have a chat on Fridays on on um on Discord and I mentioned we were having you on. She said I've got a question. And she said ask ask John what his favourite cheese is, and I said Marjorie I'm adding it. So she, so, she, <laughs> so I've got two left. Okay, um, one from Constantine. Who is the salesman? That's a question for Dennis. I did think that would be the case. Yeah. Having not read the, the fiction, I thought it might have been something from the fiction I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on. Yeah. Okay, so the last question is from Dennis Detweller. <laughs> the reaction says, oh, what can you tell us about the dog's head? <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. Uh, um, yeah, that's a long story. Uh, let me see what version of it I can do. Uh, because like that is a that is like a forty five minute story. Oh um, god! <laughs> so, but I, I will I will I'll just excerpt the most relevant portion of it that directly answers. Okay. That. Um. Uh. Yeah. Um. One of the people in my college gaming club that I went to, that I knew uh, and that worked on musical oath and stuff with me back in the day uh, was Blair Reynolds, and Blair was an artist. Um, and a huge Kahula fan, deeply, um, very strange person. And he um, had grown up in Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, and he came to college in where I was going to college in Missouri, but he went back to Alaska for a while while I was still in school. And um, one day, I think he called me and warned me that a package was. And he, didn't, oh, he, wouldn't say, he wouldn't say what it was, but he just said something like, gentlemen, it's going to be real tasty. <laughs> and you get this in my, my, I was living in a house full of people who all were pagan publishing related. Uh, and so Jeff Barber, who was my, uh, worked with Pagan at the time, he and I, this, this package arrives while I'm gone. And Jeff sticks it in his room until I get back. And so I get home that evening, it's been hours, he brings a package out, and um, we uh, start to open it. It's like a FedEx package, FedEx package. We open it, um, and when we do, like, it, it smells kind of like broccoli. And okay. like, what the heck? And at the top of the package, there's kind of a tall uh, box, like about, I guess about like the tall show. Um, we open it up. And inside, there's like um, cold packs, like like you know, dry ice packs. And there's a note on top, handwritten by Blair, which provides the text of a ritual that uh, the note instructed us to read aloud before we continued opening the package. And the ritual was in 
some other language. I couldn't tell you what it was. It was all gibberish to me. And so we did. So we're like, okay, sure, Blair, you crazy person. And so we read aloud this like cryptic phrase because we're gullible like that. Uh, and at about the same time, uh, in California, Gene Roddenberry, the figure of Star Trek, dropped down. <laughs> Open the package further, and inside uh, was um, the uh, formerly frozen, now somewhat thawed, uh, severed head of a large dog. Actual dog head. Mm. Um, <laughs> what? It was uh, probably like a German Shepherd, maybe, like a large, you know, powerful dog. And um, it still had the collar around the the stump of the neck. Jesus Christ. Um, and I remember we, we began to, like, pull back, like, the plastic wrap. And they're and, and, and both were wearing gloves, I think. In fact, he should be included. That's right. There were latex gloves included on the top of the box. So we put the gloves on. Pull back the plastic, mm-hmm. and we see fur, this black hair. And I seriously, like, I jumped back and I said, "It's a head. It's a human head. Who fucking says a human head?" <laughs> and but Jeff was uh, a graduate student in uh, wildlife biology. And he said, "No, no, it's fur. It's fur." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." Right. <laughs> and then we pull out this this dog's head, um, and. There's a long story about why he did this and how it was actually related to an earlier incident that happened in, in school um, in which he found in a dumpster a recently frozen headless body of a dog outside of a science building on campus. That's sort of the reason why this is relevant, um, because now here was a head. And uh, we had to ask the question of ourselves, like, what do we do with this? Like, he sent us this thing because he's weird, and we thought it would be hilarious and disturbing to do this to us. What are we going to do with this flipping dog head? Um, and so we immediately put it in the freezer, like, wrapped it up, put it in the freezer to get back to being frozen again because it smelled like broccoli. Um, and then we just began telling everyone we knew, like, hey, guess what? I've got a dog in my fridge. <laughs> <laughs> and without fail, everyone we told was like, can I see it? Like, yeah, come on over. And they come over and we'd be like, here it is. Like, ah, the dog. You know, like, that's, that's <laughs> um, And we, you know, we kept it for probably a few weeks in the freezer and didn't know what to do with it. And we called him and he's like, hey, 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 hey. He's laughing at us because he's like a mental person. Um, he's passed away now, so I can talk about him today. Um, he was a very disturbing and strong person, um, but a friend nonetheless. And ultimately, we didn't know what to do with it, but we had a roommate uh, who was not part of Pagan, just a college guy that I knew from the computer lab. He was a grad student. He'd been a grad student for like 10 years, but he was one of those guys. He was never, never going to leave school. And he was, uh, he was an alcoholic, serious alcoholic. Um, and would routinely just like get drunk and pass out in the streets or whatever. He was a real messed up guy. Um, but he was there living in this house with us 
just like completely not a gamer, not connected to any of this, but a drunken kind of miscreant. And and he wanted to know what, what we're going to do. And we're like, we don't know what to do with this thing. We got to like get rid of it somewhere. How do you get rid of a dog thing? And this guy said, well, maybe we could, maybe you could bury it and then like dig it up in like a year or two when it's like a skull or something. And, you know, you know, have a dog skull. You can keep a dog skull as a souvenir of this horrible experience. And we're like, okay, sure. And, and that, that sounds great. And he's like, okay, I'll go, I'll go bury it for you. Because he was alcoholic and had problems. So he took the head and went off in the woods someplace and buried it. He was not a wildlife biologist. He imagined that if you bury a body part in the ground, that a year later, it'll emerge as like a shining, you know, like perfect <laughs> bone. That is like ready for like anatomical display at a museum. And... When a year or so later, Blair came to town, we were all going to drive to Gen Con to go, go run the pagan booth and sell products and stuff there. Um, I wasn't living with Dwight anymore. That was the guy's name. But I ran in on college in campus and said, hey, by the way, Dwight, you know, Blair's going to come to town soon. And he said, oh, really? Oh, I should go pick up the dog skull and have it for him as a gift. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. Let's let you, you go do that. And so it was not a gleaming perfect skull. <laughs> and... <laughs> Dwight, uh, Dwight still felt compelled to try to get it to be one because he wanted to give it to Blair as a gift. Like, here, it's the skull of that Um So he did his best to clean it and get it in a state where it could be just a skull. But he couldn't do that without getting really drunk. And he did. He got profoundly intoxicated and then spent like hours trying to prepare the specimen, you know, I'll leave it at that. Um, and then he showed up at our, at our door, like drunk with like a paper bag with a, a skull in it. And I was like, I, I brought this, you know, and he's like, he's, he smells terrible. He's like drunk and stuff. And, um, and he gives it to Blair, who's there visiting. And Blair's like, oh, thank you. This is special. <laughs> and, then, and then Dwight like wanders off back into the street. And we're about to get in the car and drive to Milwaukee for Gen Pop, for the game convention. And this thing, the skull in the sack, smells like death. Like, it's, it smells terrible. And we're like, you we can't leave it inside the house. Like, it's going to stink up the house. It smells horrible. And we're not bringing it in the car because you're going to be driving for like eight hours. You're not going to have this horrible, red, stinky thing in the car. So we left it on the porch of the house we grew into. And when we got back a week later, it was gone. That, that's, and, e that's even worse. It's the yeah. fact that someone had taken it. Yeah. You know, this this guy you went to college, his name wasn't Jeffrey Dahmer, was it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I have two questions. Number one. <laughs> Only two. Well, I have many questions. <laughs> but number one, you said that had a collar on. Did yeah. it have a name tag on it? It did not. Oh, green, green <laughs> um, the other question I have is you mentioned Blair Reynolds and as as anyone who's into Delta Green knows he did the cover of the original Delta Green book and yeah. a couple of years ago you posted that you'd found the artwork yeah have you had it framed 
No. <laughs> oh, that is disgraceful. I know it is. I'm sorry. It is. Yeah, no, it is. It is safe. But um, I, have, I, have, I have quite a few pieces of artwork, original artwork from gaming stuff and so forth I worked on. It's in that collection of arts. None of which, well, I like I framed some of it a long time ago, but I have not framed that piece since then. I really should. It's embarrassing. I apologize. Yeah, because it is, it is a fantastic piece, and it's an important part of Delta Green's yeah. legacy, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah, you're right. I think I figured out what the uh, the, the spell was for. I, th- I think it was to ensure the future success of Delta Green. So I think it might have worked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we had... I don't think Delta Green even existed when we opened that box. Oh, blame like, That was still, <laughs> that was still like a, a little bit further down the road. Not much, but a little bit further. But yeah, that's 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 the dog head story, and that's that's that little slice of it. It is a there's much more to it, both earlier and later. But that is the uh, the shortest useful slice of it that I can I can manage to do. Well, we've been chatting for two hours forty minutes at this point, and yeah. it was a joy to have you on. And yeah, when when we when we decided to put this podcast together, I basically rattled off a load of names of people I'd love to to have come on, and. Um, Obviously, you and Dennis were the first two, so like, if we never did another one, I'd be happy now. But the plan is to have all the Delta Green guys on and get you all to to ask each other uncomfortable questions. (laughs) (laughs) So so we we will leave it there and let you get away and get on with your day. And uh, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. And I, I tell you, uh, Thank you, but it is weird to see your face because I imagine the Zoom call would just look like a pair of hands. <laughs> like I was tempted. <laughs> no, it, it... With finger puppets. Yeah. Finger yeah. puppets on. Oh, God. So Imagine that. No, it, when, I, when I started the channel, the whole point was to to not make it about me. It was to make it about what I was talking about, but it, it, it inevitably ended up being about, oh, I recognise those hands. <laughs> so... <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for well, the great know, questions. I appreciate it.